0: Loving Father in Heaven, we're so grateful today for just the gift of life. We thank You for Your mercies that are new every morning. We thank You, Father, that You give us the Holy Spirit to awaken our hearts to spiritual things and to lead and guide us in the way we should go. And today, we need the Spirit of God to give us understanding and wisdom and tact in knowing how to share the truth on very practical topics with others. So bless us, Lord, as we spend this time together. Uh, we know You're here in our midst because we're asking according to Your promise. And in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, uh, if you've looked at your schedule, you know that we're going to be talking about health and entertainment and Christian dress today. And I'll put this little caveat right in the beginning. Um, It's possible that as we talk about these topics today, we may actually discover and I may actually um, explain our view as Seventh-day Adventists um, to the point that you recognize there might be some things in your own life that um, are perhaps not in harmony with the things that we study. Uh, There's no real way to study these topics um, without being exposed to the conviction of our own lives. And that's a good thing. Um, But I just want to let you know that if you happen to be doing something or eating something or drinking something or wearing something even today, that we speak of that perhaps is not the will of God, that's okay. You're learning today. You're being educated to a degree today. And you can apply it after class. Okay? So there's no condemnation here uh, on the things of which we speak. We're just going to be looking at what the Bible teaches. And then we can uh, wrestle it all uh, together later. Now, there's most of you... Uh, probably have studied these things and you've made decisions to follow the Lord in these different areas that we will discuss. And that's a good thing. And because of that, we sometimes speak openly about the questions that might arise. And uh, that's a good thing too. But just always want to put that little asterisk there in the beginning because I do understand what it's like to be in a meeting and to uh, feel the warmth... (laughs) in not a good way of embarrassment and those types of things because you're now talking about something that everybody else seems to be really obviously clear on and you didn't really understand and you're feeling a little funny and all those things. I don't want you to feel that way today. To try to give you a little, uh, maybe put you at ease a little bit, let me tell you about when I was first, um, right after my own, Conversion experience as a young adult in my early 20s, something that happened to me uh, in a meeting not too different from this. Um, I had grown up Adventist, you know, until I was nine years old, which really means that I just did what my parents said, and they were kind of, you know, not real strong uh, committed Adventists, but they we did go to church and they believed in the Lord and the Adventist message. But when they left the church, my parents didn't um, continue to keep the Sabbath. Uh, I'll never forget eating my first hamburger when I was like 10 or 11 years old. It was awful. Oh! I couldn't believe it. Of course, I got over that and then ate it freely. Um, But uh, So I I remember going through these changes. My, My mother started dressing differently and she pierced her ears and she you know so suddenly all the peculiarities of uh, Adventist lifestyle were you know not really like why would we want to do that and so they kind of put in me this little bit of a of a animosity toward those distinctives of Adventism. So even when I was 22 and I read my Bible and the Lord converted my heart and all that kind of thing, I still didn't really want all that stuff. And uh, so I remember going to this meeting. Uh, I was young and they had this meeting for youth and young adults. Uh, It was in this gymnasium and we were all seated there and they brought in this Uh, a well-known youth speaker from out on the West Coast. And he started to stir the pot with us young people a little bit and started asking us how we felt about, you know, these distinctive lifestyle uh, beliefs and practices of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And uh, one young man from Dayton, bless his heart, he raised his hand, and he said, "Well, I don't think that you uh, need to keep those things or do those things to be saved. But I think that if you are saved, then you will do those things." And uh, you know, everyone seemed to be okay with that, and the the guy who was instructing seemed to be okay with that. But I wasn't okay with that. <laughs> And I started to think about what I was going to say, and I raised my hand, and I stood up when he called on me, and I said, if you're saying that if I eat meat, which I do, and if I drink coffee, which I do. And if I wear jewelry and I pulled out my cross necklace, which I do, that I can't have a a relationship with God, then you're wrong. And I sat down. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. You know, I didn't realize at the time uh, that what I was really dealing with was a lot of pride. Um, You know, it's funny. Pride is something you don't see very easily. We're kind of blind to our own pride. And I've come to recognize it a little bit more now, uh, both in myself and having given lots of Bible studies. I can see it pretty quickly in just about everyone, especially when you're talking about these topics. One of the things that gives away that my answer was not really totally intellectually honest is that I wasn't really asking why they believed that those things were the will of God according to the Bible. I was pulling out my pistol before I ever was even willing to consider whether or not those things were the will of God. Whenever you start defending yourself without openly listening and trying to be open to whether or not something's the will of God, you know that pride is getting in the way. This is the same thing if somebody corrects you. Like as a preacher, you get corrected all the time. (laughs) Uh, And as a pastor, you get corrected all the time. Leaders get corrected all the time. Any type of leader. Um, And you have a couple of different ways that you can respond, right? People come up to you and say, "You know, Pastor, I understood what you're saying there, but you know what? And right here it says, you know, or they tell you, you know, I hear what you're saying, but you know, I have this circumstance, and they start to challenge what you've said. You can either immediately defend what you're doing, um, or it usually happens more when they speak to something personally about you or what have you. You can immediately try to defend." Or you can take time and consider what they're saying and pray and ask God whether or not there might be some truth to what they're saying. You know what I'm talking about? Let me tell you that the topics that we're going to talk about today are the topics that reach the heart. Some people say, you know, why do we worry about that stuff? Why don't we focus about the things that matter like our relationship with God? We're all focused on rules and we need to be focused more on relationship. Well, that's dumb. And I'll tell you why it's dumb. Because when you focus on a relationship, what that means immediately is that you're going to evaluate your behavior. If you and your spouse focus on your relationship, what's that look like? You have... Two people who are, you know, maybe you have some challenges. Those challenges revolve around stuff, right? Like, I don't really like the way that you put me down every time I say something. Well, I don't really like the way you talk to your old girlfriend. Like, as a friend, you know, yes, but that's your old girlfriend. It doesn't make me feel comfortable. Well, I don't really like, okay, you've got, the reason that your relationship is struggling is because of behavior. And the way that you make the relationship stronger is by respecting those things and beginning to bring your uh, behavior in, in modify in such a way to please your partner. Right? It's it's like, oh, I'm going to focus on my relationship now, but I'll worry about stop, stopping this affair later. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, Lord Jesus, I'm just going to pray and read the Bible and all that, but when the Bible tells me that I should not hold bitterness toward my brother, I'm not going to worry about that because I'm focused on relationship right now. And behavior, that stuff, who cares about behavior? It's foolish. Behavior and relationship are intertwined. You can't separate them. And so it is that when you study with someone if you avoid the areas of their life that are the practical areas of behavior, you know what you're really avoiding? You're avoiding the heart. Because it's not until you start talking about things that are come close to the life that they start being challenged as to whether or not they have really surrendered their life to Christ. Not until you've had to wrestle and repent are you really in that point. The one uh, real you know, breaking point for me that I told you about was when I had that bachelor party experience. Remember that? Only three weeks after my conversion and I had to wrestle with God. And it was after I repented and actually um, you know, changed, made a decision to change the behavior of my life that I had peace because I had to make sure that my life was in harmony with the will of God. And that is why when you are studying with someone, it's these areas that really start bringing people to face-to-face with their conversion experience and whether or not they're accepting Christ as more than just Savior, but also as the Lord of their life. And it's when the, the relationship becomes meaningful and deep and real. Okay, So don't buy this stuff that says, oh, well, let's focus on relationship and quit talking about all these external unimportant matters. No, 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 no. The reason we don't talk about Christian dress very often is not because it's unimportant to people. It's because it's so important to people. Why The things you are afraid to talk about are the things that are so sensitive to people are the things that are most important to them, right? That, that's what you're talking about. We're talking about getting into areas that are closest to the heart and that you have to deal with uh, lovingly and tenderly, but you have to deal faithfully. Or else you don't actually ever get to that point where you help somebody to uh, to serve God with all their heart. So, you all good with that? Okay, I hope so. Because we're heading in one way whether you like it or not. Um, so, we're going to start with health. There's no option to leave. We've actually... I think we've... Yeah. No, we've made no option to leave. Um, now, let me tell you how I'm going to approach this today. Um, Pastor Mark was just telling me about the uh, the little, I don't know if you have this in your binder or yeah. something, Okay, the little alternate order that he shared of the It Is Written lessons. And one thing that you will discover about the It Is Written lessons is that uh, there's a topic, or there's a, study guide, which I'll ask you to pull out now, actually, number 15. There's a study guide on the topic of health. That's the first topic we're going to go into. And then uh, and then when it comes to other lifestyle topics, such as the other two that we're talking about addressing today, entertainment and Christian dress, um, there really isn't a study guide. So what he has done is, is said that you could use the Bible docs on those topics, which you have in your binder if you're studying with someone. What we did uh, here in Michigan, through our training center church committee, was knowing that we were doing Biblestudyoffer.com and that many of the people who go through that are going to be going through this series of studies. It is written. You know, that means we knew that there were certain topics that really we needed to educate people on prior to baptism that were not in the study guides. And so we made sure that the baptismal preparation guide that we had included those things and, and gave uh, strong textual support and that sort of thing for the other areas, such as entertainment and Christian dress, so that you could make sure you're covering that. Through the process, but it might not happen through a study guide like this. It might happen through this process, or it could be that you'll use a Bible doc. Um, I'll tell you that after producing this booklet, um, we started talking to some pastors who had elders who were asking questions about, you know, what what are the reasons for the things that we. Uh, Ask people to make decisions on prior to baptism versus things that you know we don't worry about and let them grow in or whatever, and so we actually uh, have a couple of supplementary papers that we put together, and I've got those and I'll pass them out so that you can see some of the some of the support for why we um, encourage certain decisions on lifestyle as part of the preparation for baptism. Okay? Versus just not even talking about them and then just talking to them about them after we baptize them. We'll talk about why we take that approach, and I've got a handout that has a, a study on it. And uh, so we're going to be looking a little bit at this, and I've got a couple handouts uh, to help fill the gap for the fact that it is written simply does not have a study on lifestyle uh, and entertainment. Okay? All right. Or when I say lifestyle, I mean entertainment and Christian dress. But we're going to use uh, this for the health study, okay? And that's where we're going to start. And what I'm going to do today is just write from the start, right up on the board the key points that you want to communicate in the study on health. I've got four main points that I'm going to put up here. And, of course, you know... It could be three. It could be five based on how you break it down. Um, But I put it into four. Number one, God cares about our health. Number two, we should care for the body temple. So first, God cares for our health. Second, we should care for our health and care for our physical health. It's it's not it's not disconnected from our faith and our spiritual experience, which is what many people believe. Uh, it's just you know unrelated to our our religion. That's not true at all. Number three vegetarian diet is ideal, but no Unclean meats. So this is where we talk about animal uh, diet. And how, how that came in. And give the restriction for unclean meat. And then lastly, and I add this first little part because you have to talk about where the strength comes from. By God's grace, We should abstain from recreational use of mind-altering and addictive stuff. I wish there was a shorter way to write some of that, but thats I didn't have time to boil it down. So, those are the four areas. Number one, God cares about our health. Number two, therefore, we should care about our health because we're uh, our bodies are the temple of God. Number three, God gave the original diet in Eden, but He has since allowed uh, the eating of meat, but not unclean meat. So we give the whole uh, understanding of that. And then, lastly, uh, we should abstain from mind-altering, addictive substances. So, so that you know what you're dealing with here is ultimately that when it's all said and done, <clears throat> you've got certain decisions that you're wanting them to make. In one sense, you're wanting them to just see the need for a new start, right? To, to be thinking about exercise and water and fresh air and sunshine and those things that that make for our health. and And be thinking about how to you know, live uh, a life where they're caring for their body and not just for their spiritual health. That They see that as part of their spiritual health. That's just kind of the progressive kind of thought, okay? But you also, from a decision standpoint, the, the real rubber meets the road part is that they need to understand that unclean meats are forbidden by God and that mind altering and addictive stuff should be abstained from there's two things you know all of the other things you know you so they get 5 hours of sleep a night we hope that they'll get closer to 8 right and they might exercise once a week and we hope they exercise 3 to 4 times a week but those are all things that they're growing in they're you know and and diet is something that we ex- we uh, encourage people to continue to l- learn and grow, and we educate in those areas. But when it comes to these two areas, they are decisions that someone should make when taking a stand to become a Christian. because they are uh, they are not, things that are taken moderately, but things that should be discarded. And old things passed away, all things have become new. That's, that's the idea. So, those are obviously the, the tough ones. And you know, there's lots of different reasons uh, why people don't become Seventh-day Adventists. But every now and then, you get somebody who the reason is ham. You ever had that? Have you ever run into somebody where I mean, they just love ham. I've had people who ham sandwich was like the thing, and they couldn't understand. They couldn't. They could not fathom life without a ham sandwich, you know, every day, every other day, or ever, never again, never. You know, uh, so you got to be aware of that. There are some people where this is really, really important. Now on the More common uh, situation is the mind-altering and addictive stuff. Okay, and uh, and I'm talking about alcohol, talking about tobacco, and I'm talking about caffeinated beverages. And yes, we're going to talk about it. Um, And when I give a Bible study, I give reasons and I share it, but you need to be aware of something. You need to be personally convicted of this if you're ever going to study it with somebody else. So that's my my purpose today is going to be to try and give you some reasons, okay? And I'm going to try to give you some re- reasons from inspiration on uh, on why we are take the stand as a church that we do on these things. Um, and ultimately, you know, uh, I believe that. Most people can see pretty clearly um, why these things would not be good, but uh, sometimes we get confused by whatever we hear in the news and whatever we hear in other uh, outside sources and what have you. But I think, I think we'll try to make it clear for you today, and hopefully um, if any of you are struggling in any of those areas yourself, that you'll consider strongly what we talk about today. And hopefully, you will also be resourced to be able to talk to other people about these things. uh, Because you need to have that conviction in your heart if you're going to be able to talk to somebody else in a a loving way, but a faithful way. All right, so let's dive in. I'm going to actually use the. Oh, I'm sorry. I see your hand. Uh, in certain settings, yes. Uh, I often warn people that. I, I mean, you warn them about lots of things. big <laughs> one. Um, the way that the way that I explain it to them is, regardless of what the, the practical issue is that they might encounter amongst church members that might be uh, different from what we're calling on them through Scripture to uh, you know make a surrender in. What I try to explain to them is this is what Seventh-day Adventists believe the Bible teaches. And there are some people who have made a decision somewhere along the line, but then they have kind of gone back and they've begun to practice certain things. Um, We don't disfellowship them for a lot of those types of things but we certainly continue to try to labor with them and educate them. But as someone coming into the church for the first time, you need to believe and practice what Seventh-day Adventists believe and practice in order to feel good about the decision that you're making. And so um, you just need to be aware that there could be those who are struggling in those areas uh, who somewhere along the line were very firm and made a firm commitment, but now we're laboring with in different ways. Um, So that way they know that, okay... It's not being approved by the church. It's just that the church doesn't necessarily um, disfellowship somebody for, you know, piercing their ears or drinking coffee or, you know, now if somebody has an affair, then they very well could be disfellowship. There are differing degrees, and I, you know, we're going to get in a big discussion about this probably, but there are differing degrees. Jesus himself said there are differing degrees. Uh, he said, you tithe uh, mint and anise and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. And then he says, these you should have done. And the weightier matters, by the way, is justice and mercy and faith. He said, these you should have done without leaving the others undone. So he's not saying that the others are not important. He's just saying these are even more important. And so there are things that are even more important. We're not saying, we would never say otherwise. But that doesn't make the other unimportant. If God has given it in His Word and He's instructed, then He's got reasons for it. And those reasons are good. And it's very dangerous for us to play with partial obedience, thinking that it's no big deal because we could find ourselves in the position of a lot of others in Scripture who uh, went down a downward path to perdition when they did it. So anyway, okay, we can get more into that. Once we get through the the, uh, studies, I'm sure there'll be lots of those types of questions. So let's talk about um, these four points straight from the study guide. I'm not going to go to all the texts because I'm teaching you kind of how to give the study, okay? And you're familiar with most of these texts, but I'm going to kind of walk you through what happens in these texts. We might spend a little bit of time with the difficult texts because that tends to be where people really... uh, want to make sure they know how to give a study. Okay, so <clears throat> number one, the question is, how important is our health? And it quotes from uh, Third John verse two, where it says, "Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in what? Who remembers? Be in health just as your soul prospers." So he's clearly talking not about the soul when he says be in health. He's talking about their physical health just as their spiritual health. So here is a clear verse where the, uh, the Bible speaks of how God desires that we be in health. And this is not a mystery. If you think about it, Jesus, if you look at His life, what was it that He spent... Is there anything He spent... Uh, time doing as much as preaching and teaching healing look at how much healing Jesus did I mean everywhere he went he was healing that's physical health he if you know what we need to understand is it's not God's will that we suffer it's God's will that we be in health Even when we're suffering, we need to understand that God is not it's not coming from God, it's not God's will that we suffer, it's the results of sin. But ultimately, Jesus came and showed that his desire is that we be in health, and he brought healing wherever he went. So it should not be a surprise that God cares for our health. But it just it it helps remind us that God loves the whole person and he cares about every aspect of our life, not just whether we're going to heaven or not. He cares about how we feel. He cares about uh, our bodies. Which uh, key point is that? Number one, right? Okay, question number two. Why did God share principles of good health with His people? Exodus 23, 25. Somebody tell me what the blank says. You shall serve the Lord your God and He will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from the midst of you so if you want God uh, to take away disease take away sickness then you have to recognize that there are certain laws okay just like there are moral laws there are physical or natural laws and we can't expect God to take away sickness and disease from us while we are violating natural law that he created, do you follow that that's this is why if somebody came to me and said, you know uh, pastor, you know I, I want you to pray for so and so because I just know the lord 's going to heal him um And I say, well, what's their problem? Well, they have lung cancer. Oh, that's awful. Um, How'd they get it? Well, they smoke three packs a day. Um, Well, they're ready to make a change now? Well, no. I mean, he's still doing it. But um, but I just know the Lord wants to extend his life, or what have you. Keep in mind that the Lord would. It doesn't make sense for the Lord to miraculously restore someone who is going to continue to violate natural law and put themselves right back where they were. So, yes, uh, the Lord heals, but the Lord heals in harmony with natural law. And uh, to a great degree, the 7th Adventist church believes in the message of health um, in the sense that just like Jesus healed, but in a miraculous sense, He has given us a message so that we can help people understand that they can be healed by simply changing their lifestyle. And it's an incredible thing. So uh, God cares about our health and He will take away sickness and disease, but um, we need to serve the Lord our God. And when we serve the Lord in both, both moral and in natural law, we find that the Lord blesses us. So which one does number two? Which key point does that fall under? Still number one. What sort of life does Jesus promise us? I've come that they might have life and that they may have it more abundantly. What key point is that? One. Okay, so the first three questions are basically building the case that God cares about our physical health. He cares for us, and therefore He cares about our physical health. Number four, what does the Bible call our body? The temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and it says that we're not our own. We were bought with a price. So we belong to God, not just in a sort of uh, spiritual way, but we, our bodies, belong to God. He made them, and, they, and, and, and we are stewards of our own bodies. Which one does that uh, address? Key point number two. Okay, so you're now talking about how we have a body temple, and that body temple, according. let's, let's turn actually to this text in 1 Corinthians. Um, I want to look at a couple. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse uh, 19. The Bible says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. So we are to glorify God in our body. Now, the context is to flee sexual immorality. So this is obviously referring to um, keeping our body morally pure. But if, he, if the body belongs to Him, then it also means keeping our body physically pure. Okay, And you have that a little bit more if you go back to chapter 3 and ver- of the same book, 1 Corinthians, Chapter 3, verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple you are. That's some pretty strong language, isn't it? It says that if anyone defiles the temple of God... If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. I'm in 1 Corinthians uh, 3.16 if I didn't give the right verse. Did I give the wrong verse on that? Okay, good. Well, then we were in 1 Corinthians 6. And some of you might have been writing while we were... 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 is what we read first. And then I took you back to 1 Corinthians 3 verses 16 and 17. So in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 17... It says, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. Now, you know, it doesn't tell us exactly what that means, right? What does that mean, defile the temple of God? Well, you know, we can't be dogmatic about it, but I would say this, it's certainly defiling to the temple to uh, take something... Addictive or mind altering, something that would, would cloud your judgment and reason. If there's any part of the body that the temple is, uh, is most sacred, it's the mind, right? And so we want to be careful that we don't put things in our body that defile the temple. I mean, where does the Holy Spirit dwell in the body? In the toes? Primarily, the Holy Spirit speaks to us and directs us, it brings us conviction, and that sort of thing through the mind. If you're doing things that cloud the mind, then what are you doing to the temple? And how how are you you're interfering with the work of the Spirit of God? You understand why that particular aspect is so important. That's why uh, you know you're not going to find a text that says uh, anything about. Uh, smoking cigarettes. You're not going to find it. But does that mean that it's okay biblically to smoke cigarettes? You're not going to find anything about opioids. right? You're not going to find anything about a lot of drugs. So biblically, how do we defensibly say that we should not do those things? Right here. 1 Corinthians three, right? Our body was bought with a price. We are to not defile it. It is the temple. It is to be kept sacred, and for that reason, we cannot take things that will that will cloud the judgment and the mind. Okay, it's it's a principle that needs to be applied, and uh, so you just need to be aware that you know you're not going to find a specific verse about smoking pot, but it doesn't mean that it's okay in the Bible. Okay, so anyway, uh, the body is a temple and that principle is the principle that really governs our position on temperance. And so we just need to understand that's the scriptural backing that we have on the temperance issue Now, other than alcohol, which we'll get into other texts. Uh, the other principle which which then strengthens the body temple is in question number five. And you find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to what? The glory of God. This sounds very similar to 1 Corinthians 6 where it said that we are to glorify God in our body. Right? So we're to glorify God in our body. And then this brings it home not just do we glorify God in our body in the sense of fleeing sexual immorality, but apparently we give glory to God or glorify God in our body whether we eat or drink or whatever we do. So now we understand that God actually expects that His people will do that which is pleasing to Him even in the areas of eating and drinking. Now, are eating and drinking... The core of religious faith? No. We could quickly go to Romans 14 and learn that the kingdom of God is not uh, made up or a matter of eating and drinking. It makes it clear that we're not saying that that should be the, the thing. But it's wrong for somebody to say that it's unimportant because Scripture, we just read it, clearly says that it is important. Are you tracking? So what you're going to get when you're studying with someone sometimes is a a new realization that Scripture actually uh, counsels us to be careful about our physical health, even what we eat and drink. That's something that people had not really thought a lot about a lot of times when you study with them. So now we come, that again is key point number two, right? We should care for the body temple. Now we come to question number six, when God... When did God first speak to the human family about His plan to guide us in good health? And what's the answer? When did He? In the, in the beginning. In the creation account, right? Before something very significant. Before sin, right? So we read from Genesis 1.29 that the food that God gave to Adam and Eve was did not include flesh foods it was just fruits and nuts and grains and then vegetables no ham sandwich for sure but not even uh you know not even a chicken sandwich right so there is no uh and here's the significance of that and you know you might say well why do we go into that because Originally, you know, when someone becomes a Seventh-day Adventist, we understand that the Bible makes allowance for clean meat. So why would we even talk about the original diet? I'll tell you why. Because even though the Bible gives allowance for clean meat, that does not make it the ideal diet for humanity. The truth is that this makes it very clear that humanity was created not to eat the animals. And, And the reason is because the animals were not intended to die. And this is why, you know, the truth is, and by this point, they know that you're Seventh-day Adventist, too, right? Or that you are a Sabbath keeper by the time you're studying the issue of health. So I always like to point out something. You know, uh, I believe it's Matthew 19, where Jesus is asked about divorce. And they say, well, you know, Moses said that we could give a certificate of divorce. And then uh Jesus responds and says, Yes, but in the be- Moses did this because of the hardness of your hearts. But in the beginning, it was not so. I should probably turn to that text, huh? That's an important text. It's not in your lesson, but I always use it whenever I'm, talk- whenever I'm talking about the original diet. Matthew 19, uh, verse 8. Verse 7 is their question. And then verse 8, it says, He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I asked the question, what is Jesus' argument here? And by the way, then the next thing he does is says, Therefore, if you divorce your wife, you've committed adultery, unless it's because she has committed fornication, or she's Uh, committed adultery so he he basically says look what God has joined together let no man uh, separate and he bases it on this scriptural principle what's the scriptural principle in the beginning it was not so so what does that tell you that he's saying about the beginning it's God's ideal for humanity Right? Now what else was in the beginning besides marriage? The Sabbath and this original diet. Understand that this, this original diet is not just original, but it will be eternal. Because when we get to heaven, nothing will die. And so in heaven, everyone will be vegetarian. Aren't you looking forward to that day when it's just Sabbath keeping vegetarians in heaven?
1: <laughs> and a beefsteak metformin.
0: Uh, yeah. So great. Mm. Like
1: two diabetes.
0: That's right. Amen. So I point out the fact that, you know, heaven is, we're preparing for heaven now, and heaven, there will not be. And there, it's not like we won't eat in heaven. We will eat in heaven because we're told that there's different fruit on the tree. Right? So there's going to be eating in heaven. But there will not be the eating of flesh because there will be no death in heaven. We'll be keeping the Sabbath. What's that? Right. No golden arches on the tree. That's right. So I help someone understand that point so that I kind of implant in the mind that, hmm, you know, that's that's true. Maybe there's something to it, And, and I even point out that you know, technically, it's you know, if you look at the Cancer Society, you look at uh, you know, American Heart Association, we know that the eating of meat tends toward a higher risk of cancer and all kinds of other diseases, and it's because humanity was not necessarily built to digest properly and ultimately uh, eat meat. We were not made that way. So that being the case, uh, it, doesn't dis- uh, it doesn't discount the fact that there did come a time in, the hist- in biblical history when God allowed the eating of certain types of meat. And this is where we come to number seven. It says when God modified His original dietary plan for humanity. So there was a modification made, and this modification came, what we understand is after the flood. Because you would understand that after all of the vegetation was destroyed, there would be need for some sustenance with no vegetation. And that's where God first allowed. And we as Seventh-day Adventists understand that, by the way, from uh, not just reason, but also from patriarchs and prophets, which validates that very reasonable argument. But you don't have to bring up patriarchs and prophets in your Bible study. I'm just telling you, uh, but you need to understand that that's, that makes sense. All the vegetation was destroyed, and then man began to eat uh, the flesh of animals. However, there were certain restrictions, and in number seven, it asks what those restrictions are. And in Leviticus 11, you find the restrictions of uh, you know dividing the hoof and chewing the cud, right? Okay, so. Uh, you all, we don't need to go to Leviticus 11, I don't think, because you all are familiar with that, um, you know, but you need to when you're explaining to them what's involved because people are like, okay, it doesn't divide the hoof or to the cud. What's, what's that mean? What are we talking about there? And then you start, you know, mentioning some of the items and you will at that time mention pigs are unclean or or swine. and Of course, camels, right. Right. Um, Now, when you mention that pork is unclean, I know you're going to think this is a little crazy, but it's helpful to list out what that means. I can't tell you where I've seen people who have learned this topic and they're eating pepperoni pizza and they have no clue that that is... You know what I'm talking about. So I say, well, that means... like ham and and pepperoni and salami Broward. and and <laughs> you know sausage and you know and uh, yeah so so bacon right so you kind of list out the things that you think that they might get confused on because sometimes people do. Okay, so you you lay out what those things are and then you come to number eight. And it says, were the restrictions on eating unclean animals intended only for the Jewish people? Here it's preempting a common question. It's just saying, okay, I know this is a question that just about everybody has. So it takes you to the story of the Flood. And most people remember the story of the Flood as they see it on the children's books. With a picture of the Flood, and all the animals going in two by two. Because most people are not biblically literate. Okay, And so then you show them in the Bible that the clean animals went in how? In sevens. And you explain to them that that was because uh, they were needed for food and for sacrifice, but... The unclean, if there's only a male and a female of the unclean, what does that tell you about whether or not they were used for food? No, they were not. The other thing that's very important about this passage to me, I mean, it's very interesting anyway, if nothing else, is if you look there in Genesis 7, I just want to show you, in in verse 1, Genesis 7, 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, this is, the, this is the flood story starting right from the top, right? Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and a female, two each of animals that are unclean. Okay, you read that there? Where does He tell them what's unclean? What does that mean? They already knew. You understand? This is already known. They already know which animals are clean and unclean. To, and it, based on the sacrificial process, for sure. But ultimately, uh, the idea that unclean foods only came about with the Jews is just a fallacy. Because This story of Noah is long before you have the uh, birth of the Jewish nation with Abraham. Okay? I agree with you with this uh, asterisk. Be careful that you don't give your Bible study in such a way that you make it sound like um, you know... uh, Unclean meats are, are you know, to be totally avoided. But really, all meat is to be totally avoided. But if you want to be marginally displeasing to God, um, <laughs> you can eat some, you know, you have to be, I mean, go ahead and promote the vegetarian diet. Do it the way I said. Show the original diet how it's best for humanity. All that kind of thing. But then, you know, you've got to go ahead and show that it is not, According to the Bible, it is not a sin to eat clean meat. Uh, He he did not proclaim it that way. And yet, uh, as we get close to the end of time, we believe it's God's will that we get more and more, walk more and more closely to that original plan for us. Later, they're going to have much more support given to them on the spirit of prophecy on this. And they're going to begin to be around Adventists. And they're going to learn more and more that this really is a big issue at the end of time. But you want to be careful when they're just making decisions, okay? Not to pour everything on them at once, um, and to stay true to Scripture, okay? Yes. Yes. The the issue of fish. um, Certainly, we can talk all about what the differences were or whatever. But one thing that we're clear on is that the simple eating of fish Jesus did do, and therefore it's not a sin. So there is, uh, there is a realization of that. That being said, um, it's not just a helpful suggestion. We don't believe that about the, about the vegetarian diet. We believe that as we come closer to the end, that God's people have been given light from heaven. That a vegetarian diet... Is something that we will work progressively toward especially as we see the coming of Jesus coming and that God's people uh, recognize that especially in the age in which we live we should be living with a vegetarian diet I mean there's no question that we should be now we don't say that you have to be and we don't believe that someone you know should not be serving with distinction in the church uh, you know, in the local church or what have you if they are still eating meat and still eating clean meat or what have you. But I think what I worry about is that sometimes we, there's two sides of this. One, you don't want to make it sound like to the new person like they're uh, not fully pleasing to God if they don't go all the way and become a vegetarian right there. But number two, I don't want the 10-year Adventist thinking that they're fully in harmony with God when they're still eating meat after years and years and years of light from heaven. We're preparing for heaven. Okay? So, so I'm not talking about the, the once here or once there type of thing in certain, you know, because of the where somebody lives or what's available to them or all that kind of thing. But I'm talking about for those of us who have the option, and it's available. We should be working toward that for sure. Pastor Howard.
1: I kind of touched on this, but Ellen White uses a phrase where she says the diet reform is progressive. And I've used that to tell my members that God is not as concerned with where we are as with where we're headed. And if you're not heading anywhere <laughs> in your Christian life, then you need to be questioning that. So the mm-hmm. health reform should be for all of us. Wherever we are now, there should be a progress towards that.
0: Yes. Uh, in the beginning, at original line. Amen. Amen. Yes? I don't know where it is, but uh,
1: Jesus says that He came uh, drinking
0: and eating. Yeah, and they called Him a glutton and a wine-bibber, but John the Baptist was fasting. Yeah. How, do you deal with that? How do I deal with it? Um, okay, let me think about specifically what you're asking. I mean, the... the the what you're seeing there in that passage is that John the Baptist his disciples came to Jesus and uh they had been influenced by the Pharisees and they came to Jesus and said why do uh you know we and the Pharisees fast often but your disciples don't fast and then Jesus Began to explain that he's still with them and what have you. Now's not the time to fast. Um, And so there was this sense that they viewed John the Baptist as being very strict with his diet, but Jesus was, they were seeing him at the wedding feast. He was eating in these, uh, being invited over to Simon's house for this feast and what have you. And he went into these settings. This didn't mean that he was. Uh, drinking alcohol or anything like that this is not what it was referencing it was just talking about the fact that john was being very uh he was fasting he was being very circumspect and jesus was mingling among the people in these social settings a little bit more and so they were interpreting it in a certain way and then and he was trying to say look um you know there's no we're not out of harmony here it's just two different situations and the and Jesus certainly did have periods where He fasted, in one case, for 40 days. So it was just the way that people were perceiving, and He was drawing out the way that people were perceiving. Okay, so this is a really good, good discussion we're having. Um, I think that um, what we need to be guided by when it comes to these decisions is inspiration. And by that, I mean the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. Okay, So let's look at the principle that both of you are bringing out. You're absolutely right that there are times where you may be in a situation where they offer something and um, it may not be the ideal, it may not be what you always eat, but you take it. Okay? Having said that... I think that the counsel we have, and this is where I don't have time to get into this in strength, but the counsel that we have on meat eating is so strong that I do not think it is wrong or even offensive in today's day and age if someone offers you a, a meal and it includes, you know, a turkey sandwich say oh that's no problem I am a vegetarian oh I didn't know that that's okay this is fine I like the potato salad and the baked beans this is great it's you know to that than, well,
1: I eat
0: certain beans. yeah whatever well for sure but um, Today it's I mean, a is r- right so the principle principally bringing up I'm absolutely in agreement with I just think that um, Based on the light that we have, I think that we're on pretty safe ground to in a very uh, kind and uh, tactful way um, to let people know that we're vegetarian. People are okay with the fact that someone's vegetarian um, some people have gluten or uh, you know other reason intolerances now and it's becoming more and more common and you know some people can't eat anything and uh, so I don't think it's not, I don't think it's inoffensive for us to to make that position. But I think that maybe you might be a little bit more flexible in a setting with someone else cooking and providing food for you. I always say like potluck, you know, I want to know that our potlucks, I I encourage churches to have a vegetarian potluck, okay? I just think it makes it simpler and it helps to people to promote that we believe that that's the ideal having said that i'm not sure what's in all that food but at potluck i eat by faith and not by sight <laughs> so you know you just yeah, you know and uh there are some things where inspiration gives you some measure of counsel but not to the degree that we have on flesh foods and so on those areas i might be a little bit more flexible I'm not trying to make a law for you because everybody this, there's one thing we know from spirit of prophecy, it's that we need to know our own bodies and we need to uh, you know make our own decisions in that regard. But I think that there needs to be some weighing of the inspired counsel, and I see a hand in the back. I just went to uh, my nephew's graduation uh, on my wife's side my so it would be my uh, my wife's brother's son, and uh, you know they know that we're vegetarian, but sometimes they forget, especially when you're doing uh, some big thing for it's not for us, it's for their community of people, right? So we we know that we don't worry about that because we always just find what we can find, and it's no problem. Um, it just so happened on this day I went, and we didn't eat ahead of time. And they had, um, you know, the big thing of shredded chicken, the big thing of roast beef. We had this thing of chips and some sort of uh, chicken dip. I mean, there were about five things and they were all meat. And then my mother-in-law brought this big thing of macaroni and cheese. And it was like thick macaroni and cheese. And then they had potato chips. So I had a big plate of macaroni and cheese and potato chips. And I'm looking at this yellow plate and thinking I'm going to die after I'm done (laughs) with it. So I'm going to keep moving. I think you get the idea is that when people want to know, you know, why is this different from the sacrificial system or whatever? Why do we still today uh, believe there's a distinction between clean and unclean it's because it didn't start with uh, the Jewish nation. It started long before that. That clean and unclean was was there. And ultimately, uh, Jesus did not cleanse the unclean meats by His death. That particular thinking makes God very arbitrary. Uh, like, okay, that means that they were only unclean because He just said, I'm just going to arbitrarily say these are unclean but now that i've died now go ahead and eat them i mean it makes it like well why did he tell us not to eat them in the first place if they were really always okay to eat i mean what it's a very it paints a very arbitrary picture of god the truth is they were unclean for reasons they were scavengers for the most part and therefore they were it was not for uh the health of the body anyway So, uh, we're going to move to number 9, but before we do, we're going to take a break. So let's take a 5 minute break, and then come back in. Father in Heaven, thank You for the time we've had thus far. Please continue to bless us with Your presence, we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, let me be clear about something. If you go over to somebody's house and all they have is pork, don't eat it. Okay. Okay. It doesn't matter. <laughs> do you want to offend God or do you want to offend them? I mean, it's very clearly an abomination to God. So, and this is something Mark and I were talking about at the break too. You may do some things at times where maybe you uh, you made a decision that you thought maybe was a little bit uh, firmer or borderline or maybe harsher than you should have, and you kind of whatever. But you need to understand something. It's those decisions that help to build a character that's able to take a stand. And so, and so, yeah, you may have regretted this or that or whatever, but those who are always yielding and always making an exception and making everything an exception never learn how to be different. Um, I mean, I remember the first time I went out to lunch uh, at my employer back when before I was a pastor and wouldn't you know it? These are people that I'm wanting to get to know a little bit first, and everything. And I order something without any meat. The first thing they ask me, "Oh, well, why didn't you get meat?" And I'm like, "Oh, I'm a vegetarian." Oh, and all of a sudden, the whole lunch discussion was about <laughs> me being a vegetarian for the next 20 minutes. So what do you eat? Do you d- do any? You know, I mean, how do you live? You know, and all these. <laughs> So, and I'm thinking, oh Lord, you know, because we always want and desire to not get into those topics until we've built some relationship first or whatever. But sometimes the Lord brings it in to stir the pot, I guess. I don't know why, but He, he does it. And when the time comes, we even if people don't understand it yet, you've got to take a stand. Whether it's the Sabbath, whether it's, uh, you know, unclean foods, whatever it is. Even if it doesn't feel quite right, and you're like, oh, but I might offend them, it's better to, to not offend your conscience. And so you've got to be sure that you are being true to God, even when it doesn't seem like the most convenient situation for the, you know, for the people that you happen to be around. Um, we're going to, nine and ten are both dealing with uh, other aspects of unclean meats. You've got Water creatures, and you've got birds. Then number eleven gets into alcohol. Now, when you get into alcohol, you have these two texts in Proverbs uh, twenty, verse one: "Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise." And Proverbs twenty-three, thirty-one to thirty-three, talks about uh, the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup. You get the sense that he's, you know talking about its you know how attractive how appealing it seems to be it swirls around smoothly but at the last it what okay a serpent or a viper bites like a snake and what like an oh everybody's got a different translation an adder right a snake, right? Your eyes will see what strange things. Why is that? Because your mind is altered. Your
1: mind
0: is altered. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. That's true. And your heart will what? What's the word? Utter. Talking about speech. So one of them is how you're perceiving things, right? How you're thinking, and the other is all of a sudden your tongue is loosed, and you begin to say things that are perverse. So these passages are very clear that this alcohol has this effect on affecting your judgment, and this is why it speaks about how kings should not drink wine, et cetera, because when we need judgment, we need to be clear minded. And I can tell you that even the smallest amounts of alcohol begin to, uh, to take the mind and begin to cloud the mind. And you know why we know that? Is because what do people do when they want to relax at the end of the day? Or they have just a little bit, just a little glass of wine. Why? It relaxes their mind do you want your mind to be artificially relaxed what what is the danger or the risk if you if your mind is artificially relaxed say that again sister did you hear that the same anxiety that you feel uh you wish you know would go away about certain things is the same sharpness that you, causes you to have some anxiety about saying or doing something that you shouldn't. And so as soon as that alcohol begins to destroy those brain cells and relax the mind, okay, as soon as that begins to happen, you become more susceptible to, if you're in a situation where temptation comes, to yielding to that temptation. Immediately. You don't have to be drunk that immediately begins to affect the judgment. Yes, Pastor Howard?
1: Part of the mind is, is the frontal lobe or the decision-making. So it's not just the mind, it's where you
0: are... Making moral choices. That's exactly right. And the reason I'm bringing this up, why am I saying it that way? Somebody tell me why I'm saying it that way. If you're in the Bible study, why is it important to say that? That's right. Because we believe in abstaining from alcohol. Not... Social drinking, moderation, a little here and there. And, and so you can't go to the drunkenness passages. You have to recognize that there's a principle being given here in Proverbs that is ultimately that there's a judgment issue. And so when you read about the judgment issue, seeing strange things, uttering perverse things, not only will you potentially think things that you shouldn't, you will also do things that you shouldn't, and you will also say things that you shouldn't. And as soon as you begin to drink alcohol, it begins to um, what's the word I'm t- thinking of that alcohol is a depressant. It begins to depress the mind. and I don't mean depress like make you sad. I'm talking about numbing your alertness and ability to be sharp, okay? And that numbness has an effect on you that will lead, can lead to uh, sinfulness. It's and it's addictive, right. Which is a whole other issue that we'll get to in just a moment. Okay, so number 12. What wine does God recommend people freely consume? This is a very important text. Circle it. Never skip it. Isaiah 65, verse 8. Why is it so important? It says, "...as the new wine is found in the..." "...cluster." What's it talking about by the "...cluster." This is, this is talking about a grape. This is actually not even grape juice per se, but this is juice in a grape. So this is clearly referring to unfermented juice as wine. So this is your text that you use to explain to people that in the Bible, the Hebrew and Greek words that are translated wine do not make a clear distinction between the juice that is unfermented and that which is fermented. It uses them interchangeably. And so because of that, you have to look at context to understand when it's talking about alcoholic wine and when it's talking about the pure juice of the grape. So as you continue, uh, well, it doesn't give it there. Oh, okay, it gives the example in in number 12 in the paragraph underneath it about John chapter 2. And Jesus turning water into wine. Would would the Bible say that wine is a mocker, a strong drink is a brawler? Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And when uh, do not look on the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup. It's like a viper. It's like a snake. You're going to have perverse uh, your utterances, and you're going to see strange things. And then Jesus just make gallons of it for the wedding feast. Let me ask you a question. Is a wedding celebration, does that um, take away the possibility of uh, sinful activity? At a Since it's such a joyous, sacred thing that's going on, you know, wedding, God joining them together, that means that at a wedding, have at it because it's all pure. Right? Um, no, the truth is that when alcohol starts flowing at a wedding, you have the same thing that happens everywhere else that alcohol flows. You have people doing things that they shouldn't. You have uh, anger issues. You have rape issues. You have uh, multiple you know, types of health issues. You've got all kinds of things that will happen every time that the wine starts to flow. For someone to say that Jesus... After, you know, the way the thought is, oh, well, they were all, you know, drunk, but then He made the really good stuff, you know, and got them real drunk. For someone to think that that's what Jesus was doing is an affront on the God of heaven. There's no way that what Jesus was referring to here was the drinking of alcohol when the Bible condemns it elsewhere, okay? Those who practice drunkenness shall not inherit the kingdom of God, we're told in Galatians 5, and then Jesus is giving them vats of alcohol those two things cannot coexist in the day times of jesus you could not go into the market and open this refrigerator and pull out you know grape juice and go over to this here and pull out wine alcoholic wine you could not do that because it was not so cut and dry They did not have easy ways. They did have ways of preserving, but it was not simple to preserve the pure juice of the grape. So the reality is, from what I gather, you have this possibility with juice that it is in the process of fermentation. I mean, you can't even be 100% clear at times how much. And, And, you know, some people argue over the Deacons not being allowed much wine, and you know, you have certain people in the Bible who would drink wine and they would be drunk and what have you. I'm not sure they always had a real clear picture of just where something was in that. You understand what I'm saying? It just was. But for us, Christians, and we can actually choose whether it's pure or whether it's not, and people say, oh, but the grape juice, or I'm sorry, the wine, it has all these wonderful properties for your heart. You know, I remember watching this thing where it told me that for 15 minutes, and at the very end, it told me that it was in the skin of the grape. <laughs> oh well, then you could take it and get it in grape juice, right? Without the, you know, life destroying part. Um, so anyway, the reality is we're not in the same time. So that word, you know, in terms of fermented or unfermented, I'm not sure that we can look at it in the same way. Okay. Uh, Galatians 5, verse. I want to say around. 19 through 21 it's in it's a whole statement but verse 21 says drunkenness revelries and the like of which I tell you beforehand just as I told you in time past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God okay number 13 is talking about uh, tobacco I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because it falls under the same category of uh, defiling the body temple basically there's not a specific text but I'm getting ready to talk uh, for Uh, I'm going to give you more on the topic of caffeinated beverages because it's a common question. So this will fall kind of in that category for sure. And then ultimately, how did Paul describe the Christian journey toward our heavenly home? He talks about how we need to be uh, temperate in all things, etc. So you can see how this finishes. The main thing that we wanted to do was tell them that God cares about their health that we should see it as a Christian responsibility to care for the body temple, that the vegetarian diet was the original diet and it's ideal, but that God does clearly say uh, that while clean meats maybe have been allowed after the flood, unclean meats are forbidden by the Bible. And then lastly, we should abstain from the recreational use of mind-altering and addictive drugs. Now, In that point on abstaining from mind-altering and addictive, which I told you was related to the body-temple issue, um, I'm going to give you a handout so that I can talk to you a little bit about caffeinated beverages. Um, Because we talk about this as we're preparing people for baptism and studying the Bible with them. Um, Actually, why don't I get a couple of helpers to help me do this? Any helper would be fine. Now, let me be clear about what I'm just about to do with you, okay? I am not telling you to give these first few pages to someone that you're studying the Bible with. This is something that I'm sharing with you to help you to see where we as Seventh-day Adventists have received some clear counsel on this issue and what it looks like, okay? And then there's a couple articles that I've attached to here um, that are helpful. That maybe you could give to a uh, to a perspective, at least one of them. The one from Forbes you could give to someone. The other two I wouldn't because they're Adventist periodicals. Okay, let me just show you what this has in it. Um, <clears throat> first, it just gives a few Bible verses, and these are the texts that you would use, uh, and we've already gone over them, but to really give biblical support for why we don't, uh, we believe that mind-altering addictive substances are not in harmony with Christian faith. Number one is: Do you not know that you are the temple of God? If anyone defiles the temple, God will destroy him. <clears throat> for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Two is that uh, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Temperance is self-control and being able to discipline our bodies uh, from those things that would be harmful. And then three, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we already looked at that, but these are the the foundational principle-based texts that give us uh, the background for why we uh, believe in temperance the way we do. Then it says, Caffeine, like alcohol and tobacco, is a harmful and addictive drug. The suffix I-N-E on the end of the word gives it away. Uh, Cocaine, morphine, codeine, nicotine. You look at a lot of drugs have I-N-E on the end of it. Um, And caffeine is a drug. It is addictive. Taking such drugs recreationally merely to obtain their mind-altering effects defiles the body temple that God designs for us to keep holy. So that's the biblical foundation for why we do not drink caffeine. Let's look at what... Uh, Ellen White has, in terms of counsel, on the topic of caffeine. Ellen White did not address caffeine by name, but wrote much about the dangers of drinking caffeinated beverages such as tea and coffee. This next paragraph is very important when it comes to health reform for you to understand kind of how uh, the spirit of prophecy gives us um, guidance on certain items. Tea, coffee, tobacco, and alcohol we must present as what? Sinful indulgences. We cannot place on the same ground meat, eggs, butter, cheese, and such articles placed upon the table. These are not to be borne in front as the burden of our work. The former, tea, coffee, tobacco, beer, wine, and all spirituous liquors, are not to be taken how? But? Okay, so what are the two categories here? One is to be... Totally discarded. And the other category might be taken occasionally or moderately. It's, it's, it wouldn't be sinful if someone occasionally or moderately uh, consumed of the other. And which items are in the totally discard category? Tea, coffee, tobacco, alcohol. And specifically, yeah, and of course he's referring to caffeinated here, but specifically, she actually, because it's in the, in the area of discard, it, she refers to it as a sinful indulgence. So if it's something we feel like we want to indulge in, then it, it's not that is essentially not safe for us to indulge in. Okay, now um, let's look at what's underneath where we have just more statements of the same. All should bear a clear testimony against tea and coffee. What? Never using them. them. They are what? What's a narcotic? Mind-altering drug. They are narcotics, injurious alike to the brain and to the other organs of the body. Tea and coffee drinking is a sin. An injurious indulgence which, like other evils, injures the soul. These darling idols... Create an excitement, a morbid action of the nervous system. Tea and coffee, as well as tobacco, have an injurious effect upon the system. <laughs> tea is intoxicating, though less in degree, its effect is the same in character as that of spirituous liquors. Coffee has a greater tendency to be cloud the intellect and benumb the energies. It is not so powerful as tobacco, but is similar in its effects. The arguments brought against tobacco may also be urged against the use of tea and coffee. Those who are in the habit of using tea, coffee, tobacco, opium, or spirituous liquors cannot worship God when they are deprived of the accustomed indulgence. Let them, while deprived of these stimulants, engage in the worship of God, and divine grace would be powerless to animate, enliven, or spiritualize their prayers or their testimonies. These professed Christians should consider the means of their enjoyment. Is it from above or from beneath? In other words, this person Feels like they have to have their tea or coffee in order to. You ever heard anybody say that? Don't talk to me before I have my cup of coffee. Don't ask me to worship God before I have my cup of coffee. I wouldn't be able to think. I wouldn't be able to reason rightly. This is what it's being what's being said. Now, something that's really important here, you'll notice she says that. Uh, Tea is intoxicating, though less in degree, its effect is the same character as that of spirituous liquors. So does she say that tea and coffee is of the same degree as alcohol or tobacco? No, she actually says also about uh, tobacco, she says it is not as powerful as tobacco. Tea is a
1: very mild drink. drink, Drinking a cup of tea is... When you speak to an English person, tea is like drinking a glass of water. You know, it's seem very strong at all whereas coffee seems much
0: stronger well that all depends Uh, there's a lot of caffeinated tea that's caffeinated just about as much as coffee and it is just as powerful Um, you might say well what about herb tea well herb tea is not caffeinated so that's not what we're talking about what about decaffeinated coffee well decaffeinated coffee has a very uh, small amount of caffeine it's true So does chocolate. You'll notice, though, for instance, that Ellen White, though chocolate was clearly around in her day, did not condemn the use of chocolate. When you're talking about
1: (laughs) (laughs) when you're talking
0: about uh, amounts that are not of the level that someone would use them to artificially uh, give them alertness or what have you then you're really not talking about the same category. It does not make them good for you. It does not mean they're harmless. But it means that we should not necessarily put them in the same category of you know, never ever having and you know, discard or what have you. Um, so, but the point that I'm, all I'm trying to draw out is not to minimize t- tea or coffee, but to say, let's not give the impression that we consider coffee the same as alcohol. Because we don't. But, like I said before, that doesn't in any way mean that it's not still in the category that should be totally discarded. Because it is. Because it's very, it can be very, very harmful. I don't know if you heard the uh, guy who, the young man who died from uh, drinking energy drinks. It was just, a, it was just uh, about a month ago. He drank a couple energy drinks and I, I forget what he had, but died. You say, well, you know, that's a... Now he had so much. Okay, well, you have to take a lot of alcohol to die, too. Right? I mean, this kid died from drinking. Oh, but there's no harm to this. No, there is harm to it. And Christians should not play with things that are harmful. Oh, I'm going to take something that's harmful and addictive and mind-altering, and I'm just going to take it in moderation. No, that very thing leads you to the possibility of being addicted. And there are many people who are addicted who don't know that they are addicted. You can just have a cup of coffee a day or a couple cups a day and follow all of the guidelines that people tell you. Oh, if you only have one or two cups, then you're fine. But you can't live without it. Hey, if it's so, you know, not an issue, then drink decaf. Drink Roma. Drink herb tea. Oh. I'm not sure. I think, I, I think I'd rather, you know, just keep it down. I'll just keep it down. The reality is that that we as Christians should not be playing with things that are addictive. So when I'm studying with someone and I come to this issue, I just say, Christians are not to be mastered by anything, and so we should not voluntarily be taking something not prescribed by a doctor that has addictive uh, properties. It just doesn't make sense for a Christian to do that. And that has an injurious effect on our bodies, which we know that it does. I saw your hand up in the back. Yeah, and I'll get to the sleep. Let me let me I'll go ahead and say something about the sleep now. This is the issue. And I I really encourage you to look at this. uh, uh, It's about the fourth page or so. It's on the back of a page. It says caffeine, the silent killer of emotional intelligence. This is an article that was out of Forbes magazine. This is not an Adventist article. You know what I like about it? It's one of the first articles I've seen that doesn't give any good news about coffee. And it's taken from uh, a study that had been completed at John uh, Hopkins University, where they discovered some things. And I want you to see it because it's so good. First, he's got a section called the good. Do you see that in the article? The good isn't really good. Most people start drinking caffeine because it makes them feel more alert and improves their mood. It doesn't have a page number. It says at the top, caffeine, the silent killer of emotional intelligence. Does everybody find it? Is everybody there? Okay. And then on the section, the good isn't really good is where I started reading. Second sentence. Many studies suggest that caffeine actually improves cognitive task uh, performance, memory, attention span, etc., in the short term. Have you seen that before? Where studies will say, oh, uh, there are certain studies where they say, oh, that alertness helps with exams or this, that, or the other. Notice what this says. Unfortunately, these studies fail to consider the participants' caffeine habits. New research from Johns Hopkins Medical School. Shows that performance increases due to caffeine intake are the result of caffeine drinkers experiencing a short term reversal of caffeine withdrawal. So, do you understand what that's saying? So, in other words, somebody is a caffeine drinker, and you know, first your life is like this, energy wise, and then you start drinking coffee and you find this spike. But when you come down, you actually come down lower than your normal level. And now in order to get back to even your functioning level, you have to have more caffeine. That's that's why there are so many more people who are addicted and have uh, that they don't even realize it. So they have to have this coffee to get back up. And then, you know, it's kind of like this. Well, that's what it's saying is they were testing people and seeing, oh, yeah, there's improvement. But it didn't factor the fact that they were caffeine drinkers who, you know, were already below their optimum level. So what they were doing was reversing, it was a short-term reversal of the withdrawal that they were having. Do you follow that? Fascinating, really. So it says then, by controlling for caffeine use in study participants, John Hopkins researchers found that caffeine-related performance uh, Improvement is non-existent without caffeine withdrawal. Isn't that incredible? In essence, coming off caffeine reduces your cognitive performance and has a negative impact on your mood. The only way to get back to normal is to... back to normal. And when you do drink it, you feel like it's taking you to new heights. In reality, the caffeine is just taking your performance back to normal for a short period and then taking you back down. Isn't that incredible? By the way, that's exactly what the spirit of prophecy says about caffeine. Okay, everybody wants to comment on this, but I'm going to have to keep going. I'm so sorry. I know that there's a lot of wonderful comments, but I've got so much to cover. So, then the bad, adrenaline. Drinking caffeine triggers the release of adrenaline. Adrenaline is the source of fight-or-flight response, uh, a survival mechanism that forces you to stand up and fight or run for the hills when faced with a threat. The fight or flight mechanism sidesteps rational thinking in favor of a faster response. This is great when a bear is chasing you, but not so great when you're responding to a curt email. When caffeine puts your brain and body into this hyper-aroused state, your emotions overrun your behavior. So it's saying what caffeine does is it artificially causes you to have adrenaline. And adrenaline is given to your body naturally when you are in situations that require it. But what caffeine does is it gives it to you artificially and causes you to interact in ways that you probably shouldn't, because otherwise your body would have given you that adrenaline naturally. And so it can get you into trouble. Again, mind altering is what you're seeing here. And finally, the ugly. It said the good, the bad, and now the ugly. Sleep. This is back to our sister here. When you sleep, your brain literally recharges, shuffling through the day's memories and storing or discarding them so that you wake up alert and clear-headed. Your self-control, attention, and memory are all reduced when you don't get enough or the right kind of sleep. Your what? Your self-control. Okay, is that important for Christians? I mean, when you don't have self-control, what do you do? You sin. Right? You sin. Your self-control is affected when you don't get enough or the right kind of sleep. Your brain is very fickle when it comes to sleep. For you to wake up feeling rested, your brain needs to move through an elaborate series of cycles. You can help this process along and improve the quality of your sleep by reducing your caffeine intake. Here's why you'll want to. Caffeine has a six-hour half-life, which means it takes a full 24 hours to work its way out of your system. Have a cup of joe, a cup of joe, at 8 a.m. and you'll still have 25% of the caffeine at your body at 8 p.m. Anything you drink after noon will still be at 50% strength at bedtime. Any caffeine in your bloodstream with the negative effects increasing with the dose makes it harder to fall asleep. When you do finally fall asleep, the worst is yet to come. Caffeine disrupts the quality of your sleep by reducing rapid eye movement sleep, the deep sleep when your body recuperates and processes emotions. When caffeine disrupts your sleep, you wake up the next day with an emotional handicap. You're naturally going to be inclined to do what? Grab a cup of coffee or an energy drink to make yourself feel better, et cetera, et cetera. So here you have it. It's not that you can't go to sleep at night. Oh, I don't worry about coffee because I can still sleep at night. It's that when you do sleep, your sleep is not good quality sleep. And so your body is not recovering like it needs to recover. Your nervous system is still negatively affected. And so are your emotions, your brain and everything. So there is. And that's even if you have a cup of one cup of coffee in the morning, there's still that to disrupt your sleep at night. Isn't that incredible? Hey, this wasn't Jim Howard. This is Johns Hopkins University from a test, their own test that they did. So. That article is a helpful one. I sometimes give it to people when I'm studying with them and preparing them for baptism and, and going through Bible studies. I'll say, hey, here's, here's something you might want to consider. And then I tell them my own experience about how I was in the corporate world and we had free the free coffee machine. And uh, you know you could just press the button and uh, out it comes. And then you could put a little sugar in it and a little cream in it and a little hot chocolate. Mix that in there. And have these little concoctions, and you have one. You know, first I would do it first when I got to work. Then I would do it when I got to work, and then about mid to late morning. Then I would do it first when I got to work, mid or late morning, and then right after lunch, because you know you got to have it right after lunch. And then you know it would be nice to have one around three thirty. You know, three or three thirty. So you don't, you know. So by the time it's all done, you're scattered throughout the day having four or five cups of coffee. And what I started to realize was I was not feeling energy I mean I wasn't really all I had was bad breath to be honest with you it gives you bad breath all day and I I was it was about this time that I was studying my bible and starting to and coming to uh learn about some of this and I thought yeah you know my problem I don't drink any water and so I decided here's what I'm gonna do I'm going to not only not drink coffee I'm gonna I'm gonna totally cut it out but I'm also going to replace it with water. So in the morning, I drank two tall glasses of water. They were right off the, the chute. And do you know what? You're not going to believe me. I had more energy in the morning from drinking a lot of water than I ever had from drinking a big cup of coffee. It, yeah, it's it, it unbelievable. And I still do it to this day. I go to bed at night. I put a big jug of water by my bed. And then when I get up in the morning, one of the first things I do is within the first half hour, I've probably drank three or four glasses of water. And it, you know, and then within the first, you know, 2 hours, I've gone to bathroom maybe, you know, <laughs> 15 times. <laughs> but I'm telling you, it produces energy that's natural and you need. So I just tell people that so they understand. And then I encourage them, "Hey, There's other, if you like warm drinks, there are other things that you can still drink that are warm drinks. You can, you know, and I tell them about herb teas or Roma or whatever. And, you know, if they really, really are hard nuts to crack and it's the coffee taste, I say, well, you know, decaffeinated coffee would be a lot better than what you're having. And sometimes, you know, they, at least temporarily, will do that. But, you know, you want to be sensitive to their habit, but at the same time, You want them to make a decided change. And that's what you're after. So anyway, um, one last thing I want to read on the bottom of this, page one. Front page of this. says, The health is in no way improved by the use of those things which stimulate for a time, but afterward cause a reaction which leaves the system lower than before. What did I just tell you about that article? We always knew it. Right? This is exactly... What that article, what their studies showed, God showed to Ellen White. Tea and coffee whip up the flagging energies for the time being, but when their immediate influence has gone, a feeling of depression is the result. These beverages have no nourishment whatever in themselves. The milk and sugar it contains constitute all the nourishment afforded by a cup of tea or coffee. And if you ever read what she says about milk and sugar, you'll say, well, that's not that great. Then... This last one on, on the second page, T acts as a stimulant and to a certain extent uh, produces intoxication. The action of coffee and many other popular drinks is similar. The first effect is exhilarating. And then everything goes downhill from there. So you can read about that and the tired nerves and all that. The next section, I just this was for the purpose of our pastors to understand what the church's position has been. Because if you look in, the, uh, in these publications, you'll see that the church has always educated. The Seventh-day Adventist Church on the issues of tea and coffee, even prior to baptism. Now, having said that, uh, if you read in the baptismal vows, it will say the words, um, and you have it in this book. You've got the baptismal vows in this book, um, in the very back of it. It says this in vow number 10. I believe that my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and I will honor God by caring for it avoiding the use of that which is harmful and abstaining from all unclean foods, from the use, manufacture, or sale of alcoholic beverages, from the use, manufacture, or sale of tobacco in any of its forms for human consumption, and from the misuse of or trafficking in narcotics or other drugs. So you'll notice that there isn't a specific mention of caffeine, and that's why there are some people who say, well, maybe that's not something we need to even tell people about before they're baptized. And that's why I'm providing for you these church publications. Okay, So let me just give you a brief review. The first shows that all the way back to our pioneers, they included tobacco, tea, coffee, all of it together in the baptismal vows. And you can see that uh, in that first section. Then the 1932 church manual says that uh, we should not uh, partake of habit-forming drugs. And then says, in preparing candidates for baptism, instruction should be given as to the harmful effects of tea, coffee, and other harmful beverages. So, We've always taught this, even as recently as the 2007 in his steps, which is a baptismal preparation booklet put together by the General Conference Ministerial Association. It brings up how tobacco and caffeine have no place in the Christian life. Um, And then the current church manual uh, speaks of the misuse of or trafficking in narcotics or other drugs. That's what I just read, right? That's the vow. Well, Let's remember that, first of all, when referring to tea and coffee, what did Ellen White say that they are? Narcotics. Okay? So just because it's not specifically mentioned, remember, we can't specifically mention everything in the vowel because there's some places in the world where coffee is not the big thing, but it's, uh, what are some of the, uh, what's that? No, you're, that's still here. I'm talking about other countries where they have uh, different, betel nut and things like that yes there's lots of other substances that are in commonly drank types of things and so it's just captured under the umbrella of narcotics and other drugs okay it's not saying that it's not part of it and i just showed that very clearly we've always considered this part of what we should share with people and educate people on prior to baptism okay um I'm thinking that I covered everything there. All right, so that one is the one that's probably the, the most questioned and, and, and where lay people really struggle, so I wanted to give you some uh, reasons for it and give you that article. Anybody have a question before I move on to the next topic? Yes. What's that? I don't know. Uh, I'll leave that with the director. Yes?
1: Um, I've had some of you Well. You know, I, I have this really a lot of pain, and I'm taking medicine and caffeine in it, and somebody else them well, you know, coffee is the same thing, so why not just drink coffee? That would be better for you than taking all these medications that have other chemicals in them. And coffee has a lot of chemicals too. But anyway, but so that, that was their reason for
0: recent. Yeah, yeah, and, and we're very clear <laughs> that if, you know... If there's caffeine in medicine and there is some medicinal effect for caffeine um, to, you know, I don't know, open up the blood vessels and help with migraines and things like that. There's some caffeine in Excedrin and things like that. Um, You know, we are not, we would not take the position that that is something that has to be discarded. Okay, Um, if it's medicinal use, that's one thing. If it's recreational use, that is another. Okay, so that's what I would say. I would never however say that that coffee would be better than Excedrin because of you know the chemicals because there's plenty of chemicals in coffee okay yes i see your hand i don't want to start right don't yeah we already did talk about that and i'll point you to um, the question on the third page here Uh, should we ask people to surrender the eating of chocolate or drinking decaffeinated beverages since they also contain caffeine? While chocolate and some decaffeinated drinks contain small amounts of caffeine, the levels are generally too low to be used for an artificial spike in alertness as with other drinks and pills. In other words, uh, people don't eat chocolate uh, to stay awake. Um, Though chocolate existed in Ellen White's day, there is nothing in her writings condemning its use. So even... She definitely condemned tea and coffee, but she didn't that. So apparently there was a difference. Uh, And this is not to say that chocolate or decaffeinated beverages are harmless, but rather that we should not put them in the same category as caffeinated beverages. So that's the position that the church basically takes. Okay, we're going to take a break. Go on and come back in three minutes. Father in heaven, thank you for being with us during this last session of our morning. And we pray that your spirit will guide and direct. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, here's what I am going to do. Um, perhaps the most challenging topic for a lot of people to study with people is the topic of Christian dress. And uh, I'm going to give just a brief Uh, some key points on the topic of entertainment, but I'm not going to spend time on entertainment. I'm going to spend more time as we're closing here on the topic of Christian dress so that um, we can deal with what I think is probably a little bit more of a challenging topic for most people. Is that okay with you if I do that? Um, Okay, so let's just briefly... I'll tell you when we're talking about entertainment... um, I tell or I make sure in the study that I bring up texts about how our hearts are carnal about how we become like what we behold whether spiritual or carnal and how we should avoid Entirely all sinful entertainment. So if I'm studying with someone, I am, you know, I'm not expecting that they're going to stop watching all TV. I'm not expecting that they're going to, you know, um, necessarily remove a lot of. Um, you know, things that may not be the best. uh, But I am going to be sure that I, that before they're baptized, that they make a decision to not watch anything sinful, listen to anything sinful, etc. And what does that mean? That means about 97% of what they are watching, right? So it becomes it becomes that to a great degree um, if you look at entertainment today so what are we talking about with this we're talking about movies and television we're talking about you know internet and youtube and you know netflix whatever we're talking about um, music um, and you know those types we're talking about reading even i I will talk to people about some of the danger of um, fictional fairy tale stuff that, you know, some, for some men, they are very visual. For some women, they are very um, emotional. And some of these books that, uh, that glamorize sinful lives become very addictive. And so, you know, there's a lot of reading that you need to be careful about. So anyway, and then in the midst of all this, sinful uh, means, you know, morally impure. So this is where I talk to people about pornography too. And today you have to talk to just about everybody about pornography. I don't go into depth and detail, okay? I mean, you have to be uh, appropriate but I do bring it up because I want them to understand that the Christian life and pornography cannot coexist. You will destroy your spiritual faculties and your spiritual health if you partake in this sin. And uh, so it's just one of those things that you can't leave out anymore. So that's something that I would bring up. And then lastly, um, I would just bring back home, it's sort of like number two, um, but set mind on spiritual things. So those are the main points. The text that you use are things like Philippians 4.8, right? that talks about um, how you behold that which is pure. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that uh, by beholding the glory of the Lord we become uh, changed into the same glory, from glory to glory. Um, so you have texts that, that go with this. I unfortunately don't have time to go into all that, but there are studies that you can get on entertainment and there's one in your Bible docs that have, will have texts that will help with each of these key points. But these are the key points and when you're talking about preparing someone for baptism, the decision is this one. Right? That's the decision. So you're wrestling with them. And I can tell you, I've got to be careful because I always want to talk about everything that I'm talking about. Um, I remember this one couple that I studied with. He was really deep into it. He, he created video games on the, online. So he was the creator of them, and they were groups that would join in. It was like one of these uh, uh, you know, virtual reality types of things, and, and all the friends would go together to be in this game online. And one, I had studied with him, maybe three Bible studies with him. And I'd already studied with his wife. Or she came to our evangelistic meeting, but he didn't. But I got Bible studies with him later. And I'd only studied about three times with him on just totally generic topics unrelated to anything like this. And after one of the studies, he said, I do this thing. He told me about his game. He said, do you think that's wrong? Do you think... you know?" I said, well, generally when somebody asks me about something like that and I've never even talked about it, it usually tells me that the Spirit of God is maybe... Uh, whispering in your ear that maybe it might be wrong and i began to talk to him about it he ended up deleting 80 gig of whatever he deleted everything off his computer and stopped doing it uh, which was great but they were still so entertainment driven and a lot of young people that you study with today this is like the issue you know um and so then the next thing you know we're talking about movies right and he's got this huge uh library of stuff and you know they agree, they're on board, etc. Everything's going good. I'm still preparing it for baptism. I'm coming to their house for maybe like my last or second to last study on baptism. We've already set a date. We're getting ready to have the study. We've already been past this issue. I've already got a decision on it, and I'm going to his house. And there's his TV, and right next to it, I see this DVD case, and it's like you know this guy with a you know machine gun, and you know it's just a clear shoot up up. Uh, movie so you understand when we talk about sinful and tame entertainment we're saying r-rated movies even even hacksaw ridge is not appropriate for a christian to watch forgive me for uh you know stepping on any toes if i did but i i just a movie put out by mel gibson for the pure, you know, glorifying the violence to make it more exciting. I know the story of Desmond Doss, and I think it's a wonderful story, and I think it should be told, and I'm, I'm not blaming anyone for it, but I don't need to go and just behold violence for all that time just to get a little excitement. And I'm telling you that violence and, and immoral sexuality and using the Lord's name in vain and all the other things are sinful. Okay, so you have to have that in your mind. So anyway, I go to his house. He's got this thing on the floor and we're sitting down and we sit down to study and I just had to readdress the issue. And I said, I know that you made a decision about that. I'm really glad for it. And I just reached down and picked up a DV case, DVD case and I said, but stuff like this is just what I'm talking about. This is sinful entertainment. And Suddenly he oh. Do you know that people who are deep into things sometimes don't even realize that something is wrong? Like like they're thinking about something that's on a different level, you know, and they're not even thinking. Oh, you know. So Rambo is not good. That's right. And so anyway, I'm just bringing it up so you understand that this is an issue that's deeply entrenched in a lot of people's hearts and lives right now, and it's destroying spirituality. You want to know why our churches are so dead to a great degree? Is because entertainment is destroying spirituality. And destroying... It, Ellen White says it this way, that it, it. and she was talking about dramatic productions in her day, but she says there's nothing quite as calculated to blunt the spiritual perceptions, to take away people's spiritual interest. Because you've got to have it new and exciting and 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 the the more sinful and risque it is the more it appeals and what it's what is it appealing to it's appealing to the carnal heart okay and that's what we are naturally see which is why we are we lean toward it instead of leaning towards something like a documentary or you know something that's christian in nature or whatever so anyway um, these are the things that we will Address, but this is the decision that you're really wanting them to see that, you know, there's just no reason why a Christian should make a decision to stop these things in his life and then go up into the stands and watch everybody else do it for enjoyment. That is just not compatible with the Christian life. So, personally, when I'm studying with someone, I don't make a judgment call for them on what sports are you know i I don't say that people can't watch sports um but i do talk about the way that sports um can be very addictive to people and can steal away spiritual uh interest and i can say that from my own past you know because sports for guys especially but it, it can be for women too um can be such an obsession that you know you're giving someone a Bible study, but you just want to get home to check the score. You know what I'm talking about? and when your heart is not when you know that your heart is attached to something worldly, then that's probably something that you need to back off of. So anyway, um, all right, you want to talk a little bit about jewelry here to close? No, you don't. Okay, well, then we're dismissed. <laughs> Carry on. do you want to talk about jewelry or not? Okay, talk to me. I told you before. I need affirmation. Yes? I'd
1: like to talk about tattoos. You'd like to what? Talk about tattoos.
0: Okay, well, we might get to that, but but I I, I don't think we should get them. Okay, let's move on to the next. Um.
1: <laughs> no, 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 I know, but people that have them. Yes. And they, and they
0: oh, well, of course. They, but we should... You know,
1: one of the elders in my
0: church has tattoos. You know,
1: he'd wear a t- short T-shirt shortly. Yeah. t-shirts and show off his tattoos and stuff and it just seemed very inappropriate.
0: that's a good question but I think that I need to tackle this and maybe we maybe we'll get to it but I appreciate uh, the issue I think I think from a principal standpoint I don't agree that getting tattoos is biblical and I think that you know the body temple is part of that reason and not making cuttings in your flesh uh, is another but I think that and Quite frankly, the principles on the issue of jewelry are the same principles on the issue of tattoos. So you can't take the
1: tattoos off.
0: You That's right. Which is why I don't think that we should require people to go have surgery or something. To okay, people. We have many ministers, many <laughs> other people, and today tattoos are so common. I mean, you're going to see it in a lot of cases, and so um, so I don't think we can take a hard stance on that other than to say, you know, for those who are seeking to do the will of God, we don't believe that that's the will of God. Okay? All right. I mean, well, it's hard to say you shouldn't display them when you're saying, okay, so you can't wear a short-sleeved shirt ever? Ever? Like now this person... Well, I mean, church. in church they're wearing a suit, right? <laughs> Where- <No. laughs> okay, so you're saying they're showing him off at church. church. Okay.
1: I really appreciate you wearing long sleeves today, Jim. Can't see your tattoos. But I don't think he picked up uh, on that or
0: even Well, there might be a better way to talk to him.
1: But
0: but I mean I'm not saying that Yeah, I'm not saying that your point is not correct, but I think that <laughs> I might, if this is an issue in the church, you might counsel a little bit with the elders and the pastor and see if maybe there's a way to approach it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Were you going to comment? Or?
1: Well, I was just going to say, just because somebody wears a short sleeve shirt doesn't mean they're showing anything off. It's a mistake when you're young, and I think it's, it, you know, the rest of us don't have to necessarily wear all of our mistakes on our sleeve when we come in, on our arms, so to speak. When we come into the church, I don't think it's right to penalize somebody who. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. I mean, we had a pornography problem, but you don't all see that. Right. You know, but just because somebody has a tattoo, I think we got to be careful when a person. Yeah. I'm wearing a short sleeve shirt sure, but it's 90 degrees and this air, church and have air conditioning. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. I mean that's what I'm saying. That's <clears throat> be careful with that.
0: Agreed. Now, if they're bragging about their t- tattoo during the sermon, <laughs> check this one out. Okay,
1: then you've got a problem. A okay. If they're doing it as an example,
0: uh-huh okay 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 okay. this has already gone further than i let me ask you what time do we have till noon okay i mean really noon that's it yeah i mean are we allowed to take any more time what, what, what do i what do i get what, what are you willing to give me i'm in negotiation mode right now is when's lunch start when's lunch start over here Twelve fifteen starts over here so you'll give me till like twelve fourteen, right sure and the rest of you, if you have to leave, you go. But there's gonna, I guarantee you this is going to get no
1: <laughs>
0: more intense, okay? So I just want us to get there. All right, the Bible. Let's look at the Bible. You see under the Bible, it has number one. You might consider this one, then two, then three, then four, as essentially like main points, okay? Are you following? So the first uh, main point is that the topic of jewelry should be presented within the larger context of Christian modesty. So in other words, uh, Christians should be modest and not be stumbling blocks. Well, take your Bibles and turn to I, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy is uh, the key text on the issue of modesty and jewelry, and it's the first one I go to. I'm not telling you you have to do it this way, but this is the way that... I'm going to uh, explain it to you, and once you understand it, if you want to shuffle things around as suits your understanding, then that's okay, but I, I'm going to do it the way that I think it makes the most sense for me. First uh, Timothy 2 and verse 8 says, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women, women adorn themselves in what kind of apparel. Modest, Modest apparel. So the first thing I do when I'm going to this text is I stop right there. And then I explain that according to the Bible, we are to dress modestly. okay? And that means essentially not drawing attention to ourselves. And the way that we commonly refer to that or or the way that that often happens is drawing attention to ourselves by dressing uh, to show off our body. So provocatively, uh, accentuating uh, you know more sensual areas and and uh, having uh, clothes not covering your body uh, in areas that uh, would be sexually suggestive etc okay and in the context of that I will also sometimes point out that Jesus said that even to look upon a woman to lust For her is uh, committing adultery in the heart, and sometimes I I hear people say, "Well, you know, we talk about this issue of modesty, and it's always about the women." Well, it's not all about the women; it's the men too. But I will say that it is a greater issue, uh, in generally speaking, for men to have a visual uh, Stimulation. stimulation than for a woman. And Jesus himself seems to indicate that because he says for a man to lust after a woman is to commit adultery in his heart. He doesn't say for a woman, not to say that that doesn't happen, but I'm just saying that I'm not the only one who starts from that vantage point. That is just part of humanity. But that being a sin, that means that there is something for us to consider when it comes to whether or not we are doing something that could be a stumbling block to someone else, whether a man or a woman. We need to be careful. If we really want to be uh, building up and and supporting our brothers and sisters in living godly lives, then we need to be uh, at least careful to some degree about uh, what, what they're thinking when they look upon us. And there is also this fact, and I'll be the first to tell you, that you cannot keep people from thinking immoral thoughts about you when they look at you, okay? We're not saying that any man or woman should have to wear a burlap sack everywhere because there are some people who would still undress your burlap sack with their mind, okay? So, you know, you can't control people's thoughts, and we shouldn't be holding people accountable for grievous sins that people commit Uh, etc. But we should be recognizing that we do have a part to play in this and everyone should be thinking about not being a stumbling block. That's part of modesty. Okay. once we get to this point in modesty, we're ready to keep going in the text. And and as we keep reading in the text, we're going to be establishing our second point, which is that the New Testament contains consistent instruction regarding jewelry. It teaches that we should not merely limit jewelry, but avoid wearing it entirely choosing instead the adornment of a Christ-like character. So, when I'm going through the text, I'll say, so it says we should dress uh, women adorn themselves in modest apparel. And I'll explain modesty as, you know, not dressing too uh, provocatively or what have you. But then I'll say, but there's another kind of modesty that's actually the focus of the Apostle's uh, statement here. There's also the concept of not being showy. Or not uh, causing peop- uh, people to draw attention to you through elaborate dress. And that seems to be the burden of his counsel here is the ornamentation that happens. It says that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided or broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with what? Good works. So let's look at the bullet points underneath this, and you'll get an idea of what some of the points are. The immodest items mentioned in the passage are what? Braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly clothing. Now I want you to understand something. First of all, um, maybe I should go to bullet point number five. It says, side note. It is unclear exactly what the council against quote-unquote braided hair was addressing, but the context and some historical accounts seem to indicate an elaborate hairstyle rather than something that's just a simple braid. Okay, you don't get the sense that somebody who's getting their hair in a braid so that they can get it out of their eyes and, and and work in the garden or whatever is what this is talking about. The the clear context is something where you're drawing attention, so it's got something that's elaborate. And when you look at the passage in Peter that talks about this, it seems to indicate uh, you know the the historic practice they had of these elaborate hairstyles often included jewels and other things so we don't think that this braided hair is talking about a simple braid based on the context okay context is on showy and ornament ornamentation so now look back to the first bullet point hair and clothing can be modest is that true can your hair be modest can you wear clothes that are modest So the text, therefore, uses adjectives, braided hair, whatever braided was intended to mean, and costly clothing to describe when they are what? Immodest. So he says, let's dress in modest apparel. Women should dress in modest apparel, not with, and then he says, in these two areas, braided hair or costly clothing. So he's having to say what type of clothing he's referring to that's immodest and what type of hair he's referring to that's immodest. But notice that the gold or pearls, which is a reference to jewelry, ornamentation, is not preceded by an adjective because when these are worn, they are by nature immodest. In other words, this doesn't say Fancy gold and costly pearls, or uh, or uh, I. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, too much elaborate, or there's no adjective there. Why? Why did you have to put an adjective before clothing in this statement? Because you have to have clothing, and so. And so the only way that clothing is immodest is when you put the adjective to it, right? That that it's costly, which we'll talk about that later. But the point is you need an adjective to say when the clothing is immodest. You don't need an adjective to say when gold or pearls is immodest because it is always immodest. It's not a certain type of gold or pearls. It's not a certain type of jewelry. And here's the thing about this passage and, uh, You'll see in the next bullet point it's what it points out. When it says dress in modest apparel, not with, and then it includes this gold or pearls. It means not with any. This is just human language, but I, I should clarify with an example. So let's say you went to you know IHOP for breakfast, and you said, oh, I want an omelet, but um, not with onions or peppers. And then they bring you the omelet and you see like a few onions and peppers sticking out. You go, oh, I'm sorry, there's a mistake. I got mine without any onions and peppers. uh, Or I said, not with onions and peppers. And they say, oh, that's right. That's why I didn't bring you very many. Would that make any sense to say that? No, because when you said not with onions and peppers, you meant not with any. Onions and peppers. Is that right? The text is saying that we are to dress in modest apparel, not with ornamentation of jewels, but with that which is proper. Now, when he says, but with that which is proper, what does that say about the jewels? They're not proper. Not proper for who? For a women professing Godliness. What kind of women are those? Christian women. So that this one text itself, he makes clear that these things are immodest. They're not proper for someone who's professing a godly character. They're they're professing to to be uh, following the image of Christ. And instead, what would really be appropriate or proper for a woman professing to be following Christ would be good works right there in the text but that which is proper for women professing godliness with good works so artificial outward adorning is contrasted in this passage with character with good works it's not like they're mingled they're actually contrasted and you'll find the same thing in first peter and you'll see the text right there in uh, on the handout it says do not let your adornment be Merely outward. Now that word merely is italicized in the Bible. Do you know what that means when you have a word italicized in the Bible? It means the translators added it because they thought that's what it should mean. But sometimes they get it right and sometimes they don't. That word is not in the original text. If you look in uh, the King James, it just says, let not your adornment be that outward adorning. It doesn't use the word merely because the word merely is not in there. But this translation and many translations, they put it in there because they're trying to say that we can wear a little bit of jewelry. <laughs> you know, don't, you don't want to only attract people by your jewelry. You also want to attract people by your character. That's what they're trying to say that the text says. But what the text actually says is that if you try to attract people by your outward adorning, you will actually take away from what they see in your character. That's why he said, not with gold or pearls, but with good works. And in this case, let not it be that outward adorning. Uh, and look at the f- first bullet point. I'm going to just read it. The word merely is not in the original manuscript, but was added by modern translators. It errantly changes the meaning of the passage from avoidance to acceptance of jewelry. As in 1 Timothy, however, the contrast being drawn between artificial outward adornment and inward adornment appears to be mutually exclusive. The transition in the text, rather let it be, indicates this contrast the King James says whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning but let it be so it's saying not this but rather this not outward adorning but inward adorning so they're actually being contrasted and then if you really want to show them that these are being contrasted you show them the illustration that God actually gives us in the book of Revelation. So in the book of Revelation, you have two women. And the very bottom text on the page is the first woman that is symbolically portrayed in the book of Revelation. It's found in Revelation 12. Uh, Which church is portrayed in Revelation 12? Does anybody know? God's church, the true church. And here's how it's described in symbolic imagery. Now a great, at the bottom of page one, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. So, what is this woman clothed with? The sun, moon, and the stars. By the way, does the Bible have a word for that, the sun, moon, and stars? The heavens. That's what the Bible refers to, the sun, moon, and stars, is the heavens. And uh, we'll talk about that. Well, I'll go ahead and tell you now. The heavens, in Psalm 19.1, it says the heavens declare the glory of God. When you look up in the sun, moon, and stars, it declares the glory of God. Does anybody know biblically what the glory of God is? It's His character. It's His name and His character. So what does it mean when this pure woman symbolizing the church is wearing the glory of God or the Son and star. This is righteous character. How much artificial adornment is on this woman? None. None. Am I right about that? No artificial adornment. Now, look at the second church on the top of the next page. Page 2. Revelation 17. This one is the apostate church. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Okay, how much natural glory representing the character of God is attracting others to this woman? None. All she has is what? Artificial adornment. Again, let me say it again. In the New Testament, it is not a matter of a little of this and a little of that. It actually portrays that if we're going to dress modestly, then we dress not with these things, but with this. They are mutually exclusive and they help us to understand that the moment that we start adorning ourselves just for the purpose of drawing attention to our beauty or trying to attract, we're detracting from humility and meekness in the character. Because those two just don't coexist. That's what the Scripture is telling us. And even if you don't believe that's what the Scripture is telling us, well, you do have to admit that the Scripture is telling us not with gold or pearls. If you don't want to you know, see the reasons, you don't have to see the reasons, but you need to see what the clear instruction of God's Word is. Now, what do you do with the fact that in the Old Testament you have different people who you see with jewelry? Remember that descriptive examples in the Old Testament are not prescriptive. What's descriptive mean? It's just describing what was happening, right? So you read passages about Rebecca having jewelry and this and that. That's describing, okay? What's prescriptive mean? God is prescribing it. He's instructing them to do it. Just because God's people were doing something doesn't mean that God was instructing them to do it. So that's why you can have, uh, you know, polygamy and other things that God clearly would never have instructed them to do but during a period of time, there were some who were involved in those practices who were still receiving blessings from God because the time had not come to fully uh, hold them accountable for all degrees of that. And, and so, you know, you have that described. But just because it was described, that's very different from a passage where it's instructed or prescribed. And you will not find in the Old Testament where God prescribes this as a way of life for His people. Rather, you find that God's people took off their jewelry when they consecrated their lives to God. And two examples, one in Genesis 35, uh, very clearly says in the last verse there, So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. So when they came time to consecrate their lives to God, they removed their earrings, and they viewed jewelry as a barrier to their worship of God. And then the second passage is from Exodus 33. And in this case, uh, you see Moses uh, talking to the children of Israel about how God is going to have to speak to them and so they need to take off their ornaments. And in the last verse, it says, So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. So when they wanted to fully obey God, the children of Israel took off their jewelry again. But in this case, when it says by Mount Horeb, the literal meaning of that is from the Mount Horeb, which is why the ESV and other new translations say from Mount Horeb onward. So in other words, this wasn't just something they did just for the day. But from Mount Horeb onward, they stripped themselves of their ornaments. Now we understand that as... The years went by that they began to mingle with the nations and all that. And and so I'm not saying they didn't go back to, Just just like we have, right, go back to these things. But God gave them instruction. It was clear that that was not to be temporary instruction. And then now we have the New Testament and the New Testament is crystal clear. Paul, Peter, and then the book of Revelation portrays it so that we don't have to have question about whether or not the Bible teaches that. Now, the fourth main point is how I close every time I give a Bible study on the topic of jewelry. And don't read it first. I want to ask you a question. Do you remember the time when they cast lots for Jesus' uh, robe and for His gold chain? Do you remember that? You're right, sister. (laughs) He didn't have a gold chain. Jesus did not wear... Jewelry. We have no evidence of Jesus wearing jewelry. And when it does mention His clothing and and the clothing being pulled off, there was no jewelry. And it's not like men didn't wear jewelry. But Jesus did not. And brothers and sisters, the reason that Seventh-day Adventists, the number one reason that Seventh-day Adventists do not wear jewelry is because we want to be like Jesus. First and foremost, we want to be Christ-like. And He who was meek, you know, it would have been we wouldn't have felt quite right if Jesus was wearing jewelry. Because there would be something about Jesus, the meek and lowly one, adorning himself with jewels, that would not seem quite right. It would have been at least somewhat of a barrier to some of the people that he was trying to reach, almost putting him in a different place than them. And making him appear like he had a certain measure of self-importance. But Jesus was meek and lowly in heart. Let's remember what Isaiah 53 says. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. Jesus is our example. And that is the primary reason why at Seventh-day Adventists, we do not wear jewelry. So you got the four key points. You've got text. There's other texts, but those are the key texts. And you could you could walk somebody through that without any problem. Now, um, do you know what Ellen White says about it? Let me tell you. Self denial in dress is a part of our Christian duty. To dress plainly and abstain from display of jewelry and ornaments of every kind is in keeping with our faith. It's in keeping with our faith in what? Our faith in the Scripture. Our faith, which is in the scripture, leads us to have self denial in dress, including abstaining from the wearing of jewelry and ornaments. Um, And it's not just because of expense. Notice this next statement. We should educate the youth of simplicity of dress, plainness with neatness. Let the extra trimmings be left out, even though the cost be but a trifle. So it's not just a matter of, oh, it's it's so expensive. And why is it that this is the case? It's not just an external matter. Dress is an index of the mind and heart. That which is hung upon the outside is the sign of what is within. Look at the last statement in that little... There's four statements there. The last one. The idolatry of dress is what? What kind of disease? A moral disease. It's not just external. This is an internal issue. It has to do with the heart and whether or not we're truly surrendered... To Christ. Um, anyway, I want to share with you just one more here. I see your hand. But can I share one more and then ask, let you ask a question? See this long one here. Uh, I, it's worth reading. So bear with me here. This is an example. Have you ever had somebody that you're studying with and you're trying to explain this to them and they're looking at the people in the church who still are wearing jewelry and they're trying to, you know, and you're trying to figure out how to handle it? Um, notice this is how Ellen White addressed it here. Or she addresses that issue. A sister who spent some, some weeks at one of our institutions in, I think it was Battle Creek, said that she felt much disappointed in what she saw and heard there. Before accepting the truth, she had followed the fashions of the world in her dress and had worn costly jewelry and other ornaments. But upon deciding to obey the word of God, she felt that its teachings required her to lay aside all extravagant and superfluous adorning. She was taught that Seventh day Adventists did not wear jewelry, gold, silver, or precious stones, and that they did not conform to worldly fashions in their dress. When she saw among those who professed the faith such a wide departure from Bible simplicity, she felt bewildered. Had they not the same Bible which she had been studying, and to which she had endeavored to conform her life? Had her past experience been mere fanaticism? In other words, had she been too extreme? Have you ever felt that way? Am I being too extreme? Had she misinterpreted the words of the apostle, the friendship of the world is enmity with God, for whosoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God? Mrs. D., a lady occupying a position in the institution, okay, so this would be a more experienced Adventist who was working in the Adventist institution, was visiting at this sister's room one day when the latter, that is, this sister, took out of her trunk a gold necklace and chain and said she wished to dispose of this jewelry and put the proceeds into the Lord's treasury. Said the other, now the experienced Adventist, Mrs. D, says, why are you selling it? I would wear it if it was mine. Now this newer Adventist is thinking, "Uh, wait a minute. She says, why, when I received the truth, I was taught that all these things must be laid aside. By the way, what does that tell you about how Ellen White felt about jewelry as it, in respect to when someone is receiving the truth. And when someone is making a decision to become a Seventh-day Adventist. It should be laid aside.
1: <laughs> right?
0: Okay. Surely they are contrary to the teachings of what? God's word. God's word. And she cited her here to the words of the apostles, Paul and Peter, upon this point. The rest of that paragraph is quoting Paul and Peter that we have already read. Now, the next paragraph. In answer, the lady displayed a gold ring on her finger given her by an unbeliever and said she thought it no harm to wear such ornaments. We are not so what? Particular, said she, as formerly. Our people have been overscrupulous, that's extreme, in their opinions upon the subject of dress. The ladies of this institution wear gold watches and gold chains and dress like other people. It is not good policy to be singular in our dress, to be so different. We cannot exert so much influence. So she's saying, hey, if we you know, are too different from the people, then they'll look at us and think we're weird and we won't be able to have influence on them for the gospel. Ellen White then responds. This is now Ellen White. She says, we inquire. Is this in accordance with the teachings of Christ? Are we to follow the word of God or the customs of the world? Our sister decided that it was the safest to adhere to the Bible standard. Will Mrs. D and others who pursue a similar course be pleased to meet the result of their influence in that day when every man shall receive according to his works? That's a little uh, plain, huh? God's Word, she goes on to say, I want you to catch what she's saying next. God's Word is plain. How did Ellen White view this topic of jewelry in the Bible? I thought it was plain. Its teachings what cannot be mistaken. Shall we obey it just as He has given it to us? Or shall we seek to find how far we can digress and yet be saved? Would that all connected with our institutions would receive and follow the divine light and thus be enabled to transmit light to those who walk in darkness. Conformity to the world is a sin which is sapping the spirituality of our people and seriously interfering with their usefulness. It is idle. To proclaim the warning message to the world while we deny it in the transactions of daily life. What do you think of that statement, huh? I know so many Seventh-day Adventists who have never heard that. How many of you have never heard that? Think about it. There is so much counsel that we've been given that just lays things plain and helps settle things. And yet we have all these arguments in Sabbath schools with all these people who have never read these things. You understand what I'm saying? We just need to gather up what we have been given in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and find that it it is pretty clear. Now, a few lessons from this account that I would like to point out, and it's in that next paragraph. Uh, First of all, I already pointed out that the member in this story was evidently instructed in this uh, before uh, baptism. Number two, Ellen White said God's word is plain, so she saw it plainly in the Bible. And number three, she refers to it as conformity to the world. Now, in light of this conformity to the world, I want you to see um, what she says about the fashions and sentiments of the world. Look at uh, the paragraph in the very middle of the page. It starts, the test of discipleship. Do you see it? The test of discipleship is not brought to bear as closely as it should be upon those who present themselves for baptism. Baptism it should be understood whether those who profess to be converted are simply taking the name of Seventh-day Adventist or whether they are taking their stand on the Lord's side to come out of the world and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. When they give evidence that they fully understand their position, they are to be accepted. But when they show that they are following the customs and fashions and sentiments of the world. Now previously she referred to this wearing of jewelry as conformity to the World. So inclusive in this, the fashions of the world, she's talking about jewelry, right? Notice what it says. When they are following the fashions customs and fashions and incentives of the world, they are to be faithfully dealt with. Why does it say faithfully? Because it's not always easy to talk to people about it. And it requires a certain measure of faithfulness to continue to lead people to follow the will of God when it's contrary to their desires. And then it says uh, they must be faithfully dealt with. If they feel no burden to change their course of action, then what? They should not be accepted as members of the church. The Lord wants those who compose His church to be true, faithful stewards of the grace of Christ. And then we have the statement that Mark was quoting from earlier. One of the points upon which those newly come to the faith will need instruction is the subject of dress. Dress. Let the new converts be faithfully dealt with. Are they vain in dress? Do they cherish pride of heart? The idolatry of dress is a moral disease. It must not be taken over into the new life. In most cases, submission to the gospel requirements will demand a decided change in the dress. Were those clear? So the spirit of prophecy is pretty clear on this. And I would never share the spirit of prophecy when I'm giving the Bible study. I'd just share it from the Bible because it's plain from the Bible. But I wanted you to see how clearly Ellen White herself. Describes this as something that's important as we're preparing people for baptism. Yes. Okay. So, so here's uh, the distinction: is that when you read, and, I, and it's not just a distinction a distinction that we're making up, but in the passage, just like I could conclude that that braided hair was not talking about a simple braid that was not intended to be a um, ornamentation. I can also say that if you're wearing a necklace that's not ornamentation, and it's got a medical purpose or a function, you know, I've had, uh, it's not often with necklaces, but sometimes there's some people who have um, information that's important if they fall or if they, you know, and that, you know, is not worn for ornamentation, it's worn for safety. And the same is true of some people. I've had people who have a, copper bracelet or something that is supposed to be they they find it helpful for their arthritis or whatever you know it's not for ornamentation a watch is not for ornamentation okay now having said that i'll go with the time in a minute it's in my common questions um if i'm wearing a watch and it's decked out you know it's like uh i'll put it this way you know, take this pen. Let's say I didn't have a pen, so I stopped by Office Max to, uh, to get a pen. And I come out, and my wife says, Okay, you know, can I have the receipt? I want to I wanna plug that in. And I say, Oh, here you go. And she goes, What? $2,000? And I said, Yeah, it's a nice pen, isn't it? And I put it in, it's nice, shiny, nice little whatever. It ceases. The reason for me getting this pen ceases to be to write. When I pay $2,000 for it. You understand? It's now, the purpose of it is ornamentation. Now, apply this as you will. Right? There's a lot of discussion in the Adventist church about the wedding ring. Well, do you need an elaborate jeweled wedding ring in order for someone to tell that you are married? What do you need? Just a plain band. Now, the truth is that many of us, like me, don't feel that that is necessary. And I could give reasons, and there's some stated in here. But the church does give allowance for those who feel that that is something that, for functional purposes, they choose to do. But if someone starts spending, you know, to ornament something, then it's no longer for the function. It's now for the ornamentation. You understand? And I'm not trying to condemn anyone here because I know that any audience that I'm speaking in, I'm always, you know, it's just a reality in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that these things exist, and you can think about them and pray about them later, as you will. But I'm going to steal your pen if I don't (laughs) give it back. Um, It is a nice pen, but it's not worth (laughs)
1: $2,000. So.
0: So the whole concept is functional is not the same as ornamentation. And what you're describing is something that's functional in, uh, in its purpose. OK, um, let me just take you. I've got uh, seven minutes. So and that's with my new time. Um, if I take you to page eight, I just want to point these out to you and maybe go through a few of them. Common questions, because there are a lot of common questions. Um, shouldn't we be focusing on Jesus instead of dress? Well, I just want to be clear. Our first aim is always to point people to Christ. Notice what Ellen White said. Those who seek to correct others should present the the attractions of Jesus. There is no need to make the dress question the main point of your religion. There is something richer to speak of. Talk of Christ. And when the heart is converted, everything that is out of harmony with the Word of God will drop off. I like that. However, it's not going to drop off if they don't know that it's in the word of God. So this statement is not saying that we should not instruct on, and, and call for decisions on the subject of dress because her one statement does not eliminate her second statement in here. One of the points upon which the newly come to the faithful need instruction is the subject to dress. Let the new converts be faithfully dealt with. One does not contradict the other. They're in harmony with each other. We should make Christ the main point of our religion, but that doesn't mean we don't need to instruct in all types of different areas of Christian life, including jewelry. Alright, do we choose not to wear jewelry just because Ellen White says so? No. How do we know that besides what I just shared in the Bible? I'll tell you, because before Ellen White ever came on the scene, there were many Protestants who believed from the Bible that we should not wear jewelry. Uh, many Meth- uh, The Methodist church, John Wesley founded it, did not believe in the, and taught that we should not wear jewelry. You had uh, great preachers like Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist, who taught we shouldn't wear jewelry. And of course, the Anabaptists taught that we shouldn't wear jewelry. And then people like the Presbyterian, uh, Finney, taught that we shouldn't wear jewelry. And there were a lot of Protestants. Well, where, why are we where we are today? Because as time goes on, culture begins to pick away and churches begin to, to uh, conform to culture. And today it's gotten into obviously moral issues, right? Like homosexual uh, pastors and you know all of these types of things. But what I'm saying is, just because these current churches, we feel different right now, doesn't mean that we're out of harmony with the Word. It just means that we're one of the few places where we're actually still clinging to the Word and saying that the Word is authoritative in our life. Okay, just to point out, uh, couldn't we baptize them and then help them later? Ellen White says... Too much hasty work is done in adding names to the church role. Serious defects are seen in the characters of some who join the church. Those who admit them say, we will get them into the church and then reform them. You ever heard that? But this is what? A mistake. The very first work to be done is the work of reform. Pray with them, talk with them, but do not allow them to unite with God's people in church relationship until they have decided evidence that the Spirit of God is working on their hearts. So, good question. I'll skip the next one. How about a tie? Is it wrong to wear a tie? I mean, if it doesn't have a function, let's read this one. I want to read this to you. Unlike jewelry, which often requires a great struggle to lay aside, not many men would put up a fight if they were convicted that it was God's will to stop wearing ties. (laughs) Ties are not generally worn for the purpose of adornment, but because it is the form of attire culturally accepted as showing respect. When the dress code is casual, which is music to the ears of most men, it means no tie. But casual, listen now, but casual is not the word we want associated with our worship of God. Not that it is always necessary to wear a tie, but by wearing the most respectful attire in any culture, it says something positive to others about our reverence for God. This is why Ellen White taught that men should have a special Sabbath suit to be worn when attending service in God's house. The prohibitions given by Peter and Paul clearly address jewelry, but no such prohibition is given regarding ties or similar pieces of clothing. Much to the disappointment of most men. Right? And by the way, I'll just make that clear. People say, "Why do we do we, we take the stand on jewelry, but we don't on say makeup?" Well, I'll use, I'll say, I'll tell you what I think about makeup using the words of the old evangelist uh, George Mandeman. If the barn needs painted, paint it. <laughs> so here's the deal: If it's natural, right? Then the same with coloring the hair. I believe if it's between blonde and black, you know, it's something that would naturally come from a head of hair that that is not problematic. If somebody wants to wear some makeup to take away blemishes or whatever. That's not problem. What makes it problematic is when you're actually drawing attention to yourself through unnatural looking uh, hair or makeup or what have you. You understand what I'm saying? Similarly, let's talk about clothing. The Bible says it's just in the same passage. It said not with it said not with costly clothing. But let me ask you a question. Is a $100 blouse costly? What about 99 $99? What about thirty-eight? What about forty-two? Who's who, which one of you is drawing that line? Which one of you will draw that line? I mean, when we talk to our baptismal candidates, what are we going to tell them? Tell me the dollar amount that we're going to give them. The point is, the point is that when the scripture does not draw a line. We are wrong to draw a line. We can educate, but we can't draw a specific line. We can't tell them the skirt can be this long, but not this long. The, 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 the blouse can be this expensive, but not this expensive. Because the scripture didn't give us that. We educate on it. We seek to uh, inform and guide, but we cannot draw a line. That's different from the jewelry because it just says Not with. And when, when the Scripture draws a line and we don't draw a line, then we're being disobedient. So you have to understand that this is the issue. When people say, well, you make a big issue of jewelry, but what about those expensive cars in the parking lot? Well, I have a problem if somebody gets too, spends too much money on those things. But the Bible does not give us a clear line on those things. So we educate, but we can't draw a line or else we are taking a prerogative of God. And we can't do that. But we can on the areas where he's drawn a line, and that's why we do it. Does that make sense to you? I hope so, because I'm not going to say it again. (laughs) Okay, so, and we have on here expensive houses and cars. That's a question on here, so if you want to read that later. Uh, And if you want to know why some people don't wear a wedding band like myself, this gives you some reason why Uh, some do not wear a wedding band. And then the idea of the simple band versus the diamond ring, what's the difference between those? That's got a question on there, too. And then finally, uh, in the end, it just gives the official church, the last church statement on jewelry from the North American division, just for your uh, reference. Yes, sir. Did I finish in time? Oh, look at that. Let's talk after class, shall we? Yes, no, that's okay. Thank you, everyone, for giving me extra time. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for these good people. They've been so gracious through these very sensitive topics. And I want to pray especially, Lord, that if I've said anything that could in any way be offensive, that you would help them to know that it's out of a heart of care and concern for them, for the truth, and for your cause, Lord. And I pray that you'll give us courage to be willing to share these truths when we share with others because if it's in your word, it's important. So help us, Lord, in in, in reaching others, to reach the heart, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by AudioVerse